Welcome to Third Degree Burn, a podcast that looks at everything John Byrne. I am Tim Elliott, and with me as always is Brian Bad Boy Hughes. Brian? Hello, hello. Bad Boy? Bad Boy, yeah. That's you. That's, uh, that's you. I, I didn't even get a car, t- a, a driving ticket in like the last couple of years. Now my daughter did, but uh, oh well. You're bad in your own special way. Yeah, I'm bad at handwriting, I'm bad at drawing, I'm bad at uh, keeping my sock drawer clean but you know saturday's coming around and it is time to clean my sock drawer out there you go so we'll see what happens That's, you got that plan for all day tomorrow yeah anyway uh what we're doing tonight tonight on tonight's show and i say tonight only because we're recording at night i don't know when you're listening to this what we're doing tonight is the first two issues of omac by none other than john Byrne. because if we were doing it by anyone else we wouldn't be doing this show we'd be doing something else and so uh, we'll be looking at the DC release of OMAC that came out in 1991. I think it was uh, January and February of 1991. Uh, and this is going to be a lot of fun because whereas the previous shows we've done, we've, we've looked at uh, with the Avengers and with um, Ant-Man, we looked at a lot of older uh, burn work, especially when it was starting off in the 70s. This was done in 1991 at the height of his power, and he was really experimenting. So we'll, we're going to have a lot to talk about here. But before we do that, I guess we got a couple a couple things to cover here. Uh, you have some news you want to talk about on John Byrne? Uh, well, just briefly, we. Uh I know you have some stuff to cover, but uh, his induction into the uh, Eisner Hall of Fame. Yes. Yeah, I, I actually understand it. Was it Chris Claremont? They were both inducted as far as I uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah, they were both inducted. So was Bob Kane and, and a bunch of others. But um, I think Chris Claremont actually spoke for John at there uh, as, uh, you know, he says they're very good friends. Yeah. And so he he was able to accept it on on John's half. Now John, as, as a rule, does not typically go to conventions. And this was done at San Diego Comic Con, wasn't it? They were announced uh, at San Diego. Well, maybe just the nominations. That yeah. I, you know, whoever's listening is I'm sure is screaming into them their uh, iPod, thinking, <laughs> "Get it right, dummies!" But it's either they were either announced or they were just the nominations were announced and they um, released yeah, I, the winners later. I had a hard time finding the actual notification of who was who was going to be inducted or who was inducted when it happened. It wasn't only till after the fact that I found out. Yeah, and and that I found on the Burn Robotics webpage. I just found it just by googling. But you're right; it wasn't easy to find. Yeah. Uh, anything else you got? Uh, no. I mean, just comic related. I I uh, I got my which I ordered through the Amazon link on Two True Freaks, my Spider-Man Omnibus number one, which is about 10 pounds of wonderfulness. And I am two issues short of my Werewolf by Night uh, completing that collection. So I'm searching for number 34 and number 37, and then that will finish that run for me. 
No, Werewolf by Night. That wasn't the John Jameson stuff, was it? No, no, no. This was uh, in the early 70s when the band was lifted where they could do horror books. Yeah. So suddenly you got Tomb of Dracula. You've got the Frankenstein, which I'm drawing a blank on the... Was it the... I know Scott Gardner is a is, is collecting those, the Werewolf by Night, which is Jack Russell, and it kind of came along the same that when all the kung fu stuff came out, which is all that genre, you know, the kind of exploitation yeah. stuff when Master of Kung Fu and all that kind of um, Iron Fist, you know, which ties See, back I, to John Byrne. When I think of the the horror stuff from the seventies, I think of creepy. And uh, the the 1984 and Vampirilla and you know st- books like that that came out you know from the Warren Publishing Group right and uh, you know you think of artists like Rudy Nerby's Nerby's I can't say his name right but uh, that's that's what I always think of when I think of, of of those type of monsters and whatnot well and and related to the werewolf Mike Plug was one of the the big artists on that and he I've noticed on Facebook he is. Uh, getting a Kickstarter together to release a, a large book of his artwork. Oh, cool. That should be kind of nice. And I know he's done some... Um, if you've watched Heavy Metal, the animated yeah. movie from 80... Uh, I don't I don't know the name. <laughs> I can't remember when it was released. Uh, 84, 85. He did the artwork for... 1981. 80, oh, the reason I thought. He did the artwork for the... I believe the the sequence where it's the the World War II sequence. Oh, okay. Kind of the zombie uh, guys take over the plane. I think he did the work for that, and it seems that fit his style. But he's done some movie stuff. So yeah, the, first, the see, I, I I'm thinking back, and I remember seeing Plug's name attached to a lot of the the comedy stuff about comic books. Like there was a a Superman com a Superman funny. Where Lois Lane falls out the window, and Clark doesn't have time to change, so he flies out as Clark and to save her. her. And Lois is sitting there saying, yeah, "You know, haha, Clark, I only pretended to fall out the window just to prove you were Superman." <laughs> and then, you know, next you see Clark sitting there at the typewriter, and Morgan Edge or, or Perry White comes and goes, "Clark, where's Lois? Oh, Lois, so oh, she fell out the window." <laughs> yeah, and I think that was that was Mike Plug. See, if only he had kissed her and erased her memory. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, and, and I got into a Facebook discussion on this. Um, he could have done that. Because uh, I think it was Mike Bailey and definitely somebody, somebody else uh, corrected me on that. You know, um, that in the early, there, there was a, I put up a picture of Clark standing on the, uh, the deck of a cruise ship with Lois and they're by the pool. And so they're both in swimsuits and I'm like, how does Lois not notice that Clark has got the same muscular build as Superman. But when you look at the art, you know, it's Kurt Swan drawing it and Superman is not, I mean, Clark is not muscular. He looks like a guy standing there in a swimsuit. And of course he's wearing a swimsuit that's blue with a red stripe on it. So it's still got the same (laughs) color scheme and all that. And it's just like, how does she not, how does she not? And they, uh, I, I know, I think Michael Bailey is it, maybe J. David Weider, but they uh, <laughs> had shown uh, shown how in previous books over the years that Superman has a super hypnosis that he does on everybody around him. 
so they don't notice um, the obvious things and let them know that Clark Kent is Superman. It's not the um, the burn solution, which was whenever there's a camera on, I vibrate my face so that nobody right. can get a clear shot of me. Well, didn't they have an episode, and I didn't watch this show, so forgive me if I, this was wrong, of Lois and Clark where they meet H.G. Uh, Wells, and there's a villain from the future. Yes, and Fugit. He, and he, Tempest, Tempest, that's right. Tempest, yeah, and he tells Lois... <laughs> <laughs> that like you're the stupid your history says you're the stupidest woman there is because yeah, you couldn't he, tell he, he he puts the glasses on he goes i'm clark kent he takes them off and goes i'm superman duh yeah <laughs> i that i died laughing when that happened i saw whatever when they originally aired i just i thought that was i, I could i did i didn't even finish the rest of the episode because that was so funny to me it took me out of the show yeah, he was basically voicing what everybody else was uh, was uh, saying but, yeah, or thinking. H.G. Wells, I mean, I remember seeing it later. H.G. Wells, you know, because we got, we got that series on DVD. H.G. Wells, they come back and, you know, told her, no, like, you've got, like, the greatest love story in history. I mean, it's happier than Romeo and Juliet, you know. They die, you know. <laughs> but you guys live, and you have a, this wonderful life together, and you do all these amazing adventures. No, yeah. it's... You're not considered to be stupid. You're considered to be one of the most great, greatest romances there ever was. So I was like, okay, that's that's, that's cool, but it's still darn funny to sit there and say well, that. Well, yeah, because that's what everybody's thinking. You know, it's it's like well, everybody's thinking that. Uh, okay. Well, okay. I just want to ask you real quick, and you can give me the the elevator pitch on. Uh, you've seen Ant Man, correct? Yes. And yes. I've seen Ant Man, so just I know. Uh, Scott McGregor is doing a Ant Man roundtable, so I don't want to steal any of their thunder, but just. You know, give me your brief impression of uh, what you thought of it. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that movie. My family had a lot of fun with that movie. Um, it was—it's just enjoyable from beginning to end. Paul Rudd carries that movie perfectly. Michael Douglas fills in what he needs to do. I mean, he didn't sleepwalk. He wasn't—you know—wasn't like you know Robert De Niro's been in a lot of movies lately, where he just goes and gets his check. He, yeah. he was actually putting a lot to it and he wants to be involved you know in the next one he's he definitely built into this now he loves well, being I, I would love to see him cross over into some of the other just as like a consultant or just a little cameo into some of the other films like maybe he's working with the Avengers or maybe he's working with S.H.I.E.L.D. again or maybe they go to him because they have a problem well, after, and after what yeah. happens with the Avengers I think he's gonna have to yeah <laughs> I mean, it, with with that the, the the Avengers cameo, and I don't know if we if, if everybody feels comfortable with us saying. I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point, you know. But they haven't actually used them in any of the commercials since then. That's true. Yeah. But it's it's nice to know that that uh, Ant Man beat out Pixels. Oh, that's yeah. Now now don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a huge Adam Sandler fan. I I like Wedding Singer, and that's pretty much the only one I can sit there and say I liked. Um. And I like I like some of his his singing, you know, like the the Hanukkah song and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, he's, and, uh, I think he's talented lonely, that way. I've the only kicker. I've seen one Adam Sandler movie, and that was Grown Ups. That's the only one I've seen. I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan. I don't hate the man, but I just, well, it's just not my we, style of humor. We actually went and saw Pixels. My son wanted to go see it, so we saw it. It's not a bad movie. It's it's not Ant Man. But it's not Jaws. not Jaws. It's not Jaws. But uh, it's definitely not Jaws four. You know. 
it's not it's not as bad as the critics are making out with. I mean, there are a lot of people that have gotten a lot of hate for Adam Sandler, and so that's what's going into the reviews. Yeah, that's you can't help that. That's 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 just baggage you're going to take with you. But you know, Adam Sandler, you know, to his detriment, he looked for the most part in the movie like he was waiting for them to give him a line that he could do something with, and they never did. They gave Kevin James stuff, and he didn't do great, but he didn't do bad. Uh, Kubert got the best lines in the movie. <laughs> I heard he was kind of a sidekick or something. Yeah, he 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 was he was funny in there. They 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 you know I mean they do some 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 peepy jokes and stuff like that and and all that. But there's a lot more they could have done with that. But to me, the 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 whole uh, the the one thing that made the movie for me was just how much how many shots they took at Billy Mitchell. Are you familiar with him? Uh, the King of Kong. Yes. Yes. The 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 jerk from King of Kong. Yeah. The bad guy. Yeah. And I they nailed him. They nailed him to the wall. You know. Uh, the rest of it, you know, the the guy from Pac Man was actually the guy that, that created Pac Man was actually in the movie, and then they had another actor portraying him. Oh, okay, I was wondering if that was really him. No, no, the, he was in there in a cameo uh, as another character, but uh, the, the they actually had an actor portraying him in the, on that part. And I I, I thought they could have done better with that. You've seen that probably on the commercials. I don't they don't right. really do much more beyond that with yeah. him. But, uh, well, it just seems Sanders' movies just seem he's taking kind of a lazy approach. The that he's not, he's not really trying. Well, but, I, I mean, you can say the same thing about Harrison Ford up until, yeah. You know, unless you find a director or somebody that can sit there and captivate him, he is just. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Know. There's there's a lot of actors that are kind of just walking through it. As you said, De Niro is a prime example of yeah. just, you know, yeah, I'm I'm here to get a paycheck. Uh, and he's not like he's. It's not like he's he's a he's a, a bad actor. He's not like he's poor, putting in a poor performance. But there's just no heart behind it. It's just it's just yeah. nothing there. There's no emotion. And, there's no. So the, the Sandler's career right now is going into the dumper. Uh, you know, I say it's going into the dumper, but he apparently has some deal worked up with Netflix. And he's already worth half a billion dollars, so it's not like he's hurting or anything. He's not. Yeah, I don't think he has to work. I mean, I think he. And he. It seems more that he's providing income for most of his friends who aren't as yeah. successful. So he's like Rob Schneider owes his career to Adam Sandler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so it's gonna, it'll be interesting to see what happens to him next. But going back to Ant Man, I, I thought you know that movie just uh, you know there was nothing in the movie that took me out of it. Um, the the three buddies or whatever that helped him with his capers and stuff were a little over the top at, at times, but you know the thing is I know people just like those guys mm. that they're over the top in real life. I don't hang out with them, but I know them. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I thought it was a I I thought it was a lot of fun. I I it's not it's not the fun level of Guardians. I'll right. give it that. But it's there's nothing bad about it. It's a good. It's as good as Iron Man. That's what I'd say. I'd say it's as good as Iron Man. The first I one. don't. I only say no on that because Paul Rudd does not have the the gravitas or the charisma that um, Robert Downey Jr. does. That I mean that movie just yeah, but just and, 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 and that's him. true. And that's true. But when you watch Iron Man multiple times. 
you start coming away with, you know, Tony Stark's not really that nice a guy. <laughs> oh, he's not. No, he's no. he's obnoxious. He's self-centered. He's he's right, uh, right. egotistical. And the first time, you know, the first couple of times you let him get away with it, you know, because, you know, this this is your introduction to him. You're getting Iron Man on the screen and all this. When you start watching it more and more times, he starts getting less sympathetic. Yeah, and I don't know if he's meant to be... Uh, yeah, I guess you could say he's meant to be sympathetic, but I think even as kind of a jerk, he just... And I'm not saying Rudd should have. He's supposed to play a decent, nice guy, which what he does. Right. He plays a decent, nice guy. He's trying to do the right thing. Yes. Um, and he doesn't have... I mean, like everybody, not everybody has a big, outgoing personality the way Stark does. Uh so Rudd, you know, Scott Lang's not necessarily going to have that type of... Uh, but and maybe it's because Iron Man kind of launched these Marvel movies, and that's your yeah. first... It's it's the same experience I have with... I can I can acknowledge that Empire is a better film. Well, I don't know if I acknowledge it. Empire is a more compelling film than Star Wars, but to yeah. me, Star Wars will always be number one because that's my first experience. That was my gateway. It was my entryway into that world. It was my first experience. So I can't, uh, I can't take, I can't strip that off when I'm watching the film. So Star Wars will always be my number one. And I think that's kind of with uh, Iron Man. You first time you kind of felt and saw this type of film. So now we've seen many of these. So Ant Man's coming along. Uh, so it's, it's it's not a dig against it. I think it's just a yeah. different. Um, I, I thought the effects were great. I thought I thought his shrinking effects were right out of um, Marvel premiere. Yeah, the only the, the only thing that that made people scratch their heads and it wasn't just me. I, I heard a lot of people talking about it, and, and you know, in other shows and uh, whatnot, where they're sitting there saying, you know, okay, so he can shrink. And apparently he's got the strength of a 180-pound man. Where's the weight going? And why is he able to use it in a punch, but when he lands on the guy's gun, he can run across it and not weight the thing down. That's, when he lands yeah. on people, he's not weighting them down. That's comic book it, science. Well, you know, the thing is that they could have just given it a, a throwaway line where basically if you want to increase the weight, you turn this disc or whatever. Yeah. And uh, you know, I guess they just thought it was going to be too much to give the audience to have to think about. And that's true. And there are sometimes you just have to accept it. Yeah. Because they they kind of did that when he when he first used the suit and he's, when he's in the bathtub and shrunk himself. I don't. I hope spoilers for Ant Man. Sorry, folks. <laughs> yeah. Um, he told people he shrunk himself. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, he was, no. And he. And he falls on the floor. You see, he kind of cracks uh, a tile, like he's heavier than he yes. would normally be. But uh, and then I thought it was. I mean, I thought it was. Uh, I thought uh, again, spoilers for Ant Man. Uh, I thought Cross was a little. He was a little two dimensional. He's painted kind of some broad strokes, but um, I thought the guy did a, a good job. He had some kind of quirky, you know, bits to him. I really thought he was gonna at one point transform into the the guy from the from the comic because yeah. he kept saying he was having reactions to the particles and i thought well he's gonna maybe he's gonna you know swell up and turn pink and be this guy but yeah they they, they did a subtle use of things from that particular book that we covered with the back to the bins guys yeah uh and and, and so it's like you know I, I saw those little subtle nods here and there um the ants looked better that's for sure yeah i, I thought <laughs> the effects were great i thought 
the when, that first scene when he first kind of shrinks and you get that little uh, where he's kind of going through the building and he runs into the rat. I thought the um, when he runs into the rat that was actually pretty terrifying because I I saw it in on IMAX so it was very loud yes. and in three D so. Uh, yeah, I thought, in fact, I thought the 3D, now, now as I understand it, it was a 3D conversion. It wasn't filmed in 3D. Right, I'm, I'm sure it is, because I think it was only about a $130 million film, so that's right. low for Marvel. Yeah, and but the uh, the 3D effect, I think, was really handled well for, for that movie. And uh, based on the, all the, the size things, it gave you a lot to sit there and look at. And yeah. so I, I actually enjoyed it. Now, um, we're taking my... Uh, my son and his best friend who hasn't seen it to go see the movie tomorrow but we're going to go see it at, in 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 standard you know not 2D. In, in 2d yeah 2D. uh so you know i'll get a chance to see how the, how that looks it'll be my second time to see it and i'm looking forward to it yeah so. i was more interested in seeing it in imax if i could have seen it in imax 2d it would have been fine but the only way they offered it was 3d so i didn't want to i knew if i didn't see it when i did they were gonna because mission possible is coming up they were going to bump it and mission possible is going to take over the imax theater so i'd you know, yeah, and I'm that's what happened at this theater. Um, yeah, it's, this theater that we found is is in where, actually it's a theater I used to go to a lot to see movies before, and they've remodeled it on the inside. All the seats are electronic recliners. Oh, I've been to those. And, those are nice. Yeah, and but the other thing that's nice about it is I've already reserved the seats that we're going to sit in. That is great. A great option when you can pick your seats because you don't have to worry about getting there early and fighting the crowd. Exactly. And- exactly. Exactly, and that's it. Just makes it you know wonderful. The only thing I don't like is they got the self-service drink system where it's a touch screen, and I hate those because you get all these people with sticky fingers. Oh, that the the big ones that have like a, a thousand different combinations of soda, yeah, those kind of thing, yeah, yeah. But it's all on touch screen, so you have to sit there and navigate through, and yeah, so just take your Perel with you, and you know, <laughs> yeah, wipe it off. All right, so uh, I guess moving back on to John Byrne, there's was still some news that we had. Um, you talked about it, him getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, he's going to actually be attending one convention. Now, he'd, he'd stopped attending conventions over the last couple of years because it really affected his workflow, and that's based on what things that he said on, uh, on his website, Burn Robotics. Right. Next year, uh, in August of 2016, will be the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And they're having a big uh, convention. I think Creation is throwing it in Las Vegas. And he said that he will be there. It's, but it's a one-of-a-kind. It will not be reopening the floodgates of going to other conventions. I think that just speaks to how big a Star Trek fan he is. Yeah, and uh, I, I, mentioned, I didn't mention that earlier. I finally got my copy of uh, the John Byrne collection from IDW, the hardback. And I just love that thing. That's a nice book. Cover to cover, yeah. Uh, just, I mean, most of the stories I had, the only only thing I was really missing was crew. So right. uh, I was I was glad to get that and be able to look, to, to look through that. It's just so gorgeous. And, um, at some point, we'll have to cover uh, one, if not all, those stories. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You yeah. you of course went through Two uh, Two Freaks Amazon link to get that, correct? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. So that they get a little cut of what what I spent. That's right. Got to keep, uh, keep the lights also, on. Keep the heat on. I'm an Amazon Prime member, so I also got free shipping on it. So I was oh, happy. yes, nice. Yes. I, I'm, I have not. I'm not a Prime member, but uh, I, if if you haven't used Prime and you buy a lot of stuff online, if you like to watch movies, you like to listen to music, I gotta recommend Prime because it's like what eighty five dollars for a year. Yeah, and the entire music library that they have there is available for you to listen to, to stream, or to pull down. 
uh, onto your device. Uh, and so you can sit there and create all these crazy playlists on there. Uh, if uh, a, a movie is in Prime, you can watch it like you'd watch something on Netflix. Right, you just like like uh, yeah, streaming. Yeah, you right, can stream the movie. Uh, other movies you get discounts on, and then with the uh, you know anything that you buy shopping, there are certain things that are that are Prime where you get free shipping on it, and it's usually you can get it shipped within a couple pretty, of days. Pretty I've quick, had things yeah. shipped like two days easy. Yeah. yeah, I just never have pulled the trigger on that. I uh, when I got my uh, I did get recently through Amazon uh, again going through two two freaks my uh, the Jack Kirby um, trade of OMAC. Which, oh, which yeah, is only yeah. the first eight issues, uh, and I have not read it, but I flipped through it, and it looks um, like crazy. Typ- it's typical crazy, crazy, <laughs> crazy Kirby. And that yeah. is a, that's the term we're going to call it, crazy Kirby. That'll go up there with Kirby Crackle. Uh, All right, uh, moving on on my news, uh, I found that on on Burn Robotics that uh, John Burns been commissioned to make a three D model of the Baxter Building. And so he's using a, a, a PC, a computer program, to sit there and work this out. But it is incredibly detailed. And I, I don't know if you ever, if you remember, when he was on Fantastic Four, he did a, a 3D cutaway model of the of the Baxter Building, so you could see what was on each right. floor. And I mean, Jack Kirby had done one before, but this is definitely, you know, it was updated. And then Burns doing that with this one is really updated. But it's still got like the pogo plane in there, the flying bathtub, and. All you know, all the other things in there, but he's just—it looks like he's having a lot of fun doing it. So this is going to be a a cut. Oh, is this a three D model as in a computer generator or a physically three yeah, D? It's it's a computer generated oh, okay. model cutaway, so you can actually see what's inside and what's on each of the floors as you go up the Baxter Building. That needs yeah. to be that needs to be a poster, or <laughs> somebody needs to make a. And I've I've back in the uh, the nineties, and I've still got them. It's a it's a it's like a virtual tour of the bridges of the Enterprise. You can you put it you know you put yes. the disc in and you can kind of go through. They need a virtual Baxter building so that you can wow. go through and look at you know just walk through and and check make it out. that happen. Well, I remember when you know Doom came out and Quake came out. Um, we had some young programmers at the at the computer uh, company. I worked for AST Computers. In the the mid '90s, before they got yeah, when they got basically when they were there in the '90s and they got bought out by Samsung in the late '90s, and um, there were there were some guys in there that were working on their programming, and so they programmed uh, in they did it in Doom, and then they did it when Qu- when the Quake engine came out, where they made uh, models of our office building and filled it up with the people, so you could go around and shoot all the people. That's you cool. That is so which, cool. Which, Considering what we saw in OMAC here, it's not a big stretch. No. <laughs> but, you know, you could see them making the Baxter building on the same way. I mean, you could take, uh, you know, what is it today, Half-Life or uh, any one of the, the, the shooters that they got for the, the PlayStations and the Xboxes, and they could take that model of the Baxter building and, and allow you to be able to go through it and, ex- you know, experience it. Yeah, you get to play a little bit of it in Marvel Legos. There's oh, yeah. you get to go into the Baxter Building and do you know there are some uh, uh, missions in there, but I'm surprised it's not. And I don't play it, but uh, isn't there Marvel Online? There like the Marvel Online game where you can play 
not as a Marvel character, but you can. It's like uh, I know DC's got that. It's I don't like World of Warcraft, but I thought Marvel had something like that. I, I don't know if they do or not. Someone, someone's yelling right now that they are. You know. Yes. Yeah, so, somebody. I guess we'll find, we'll find their, out about that in email. Yeah. Somebody's screaming into their uh, in their iPad. Yeah. And then um, I saw a really uh, cool number of commissions that Burns doing for uh, people. Basically, if you go to Burns' website, they'll tell you if you want to commission him to do a piece of art, your favorite character or whatever. Um, he's got someone, a broker that you go through that will uh, that will take your money and your directions on what you want. Just keep in mind if you want to do something like that it gets expensive especially yeah. if you want to use x-men characters for some reason uh doing them doing something with them is more expensive than uh than doing any any of the other characters and the more characters you add the more money it's going to cost so oh yeah i'm uh, sure if, if you just wanted to ske sketch something in pencil on a napkin that's going to be like a couple hundred dollars but if you want something big poster size whatever be sure to, to, to bring you know a wallet and uh, you know like maybe your neighbor's pension yeah, sell, uh, yeah you better sell the wife and kids but um. but you can actually go on there also and it'll it'll take you to a link where you can find pages of artwork from other books that he's done in the past that are that are for sale now the things of course that uh, that you'd want like the a, a shot of say Wolverine diving for someone or whatever from one book or another, uh, those pages are going to be gone. It, it's going to be usually pages of of secondary characters or yeah. you know where not as much action is happening in the books. But the stuff people don't people the people don't want. I'm lucky yeah. enough to have one. I own a burn page from um, Untold Tales of Spider Man. Is am I remembering that right? Is that right? Um, no. Um, uh, when he did, uh, when he retold Spider Man, wasn't that, that Spider Man Year One? Spider Man Year One, that's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, and it's from. I'm gonna embarrass myself here. It's issue, I think ten, and it he's fighting Electro. Oh wow! But I've got that framed in my uh, in my toy room. So. Wow, I, I I would love to have something like the only piece of comic book art that I have, it, it's not even burned. It's actually George Perez, and it's from. Uh, an early issue of Teen Titans that he did with Marv Wolfman. Okay, that's, that's nothing wrong with Perez. He's a and all it is is it's a whole page of Doctor Light, uh, basically escaping and get, going back to his place and, and doing whatever he does. That's that's all it is. So it's it's one of those secondary pages that people don't sit there and pay a whole lot of attention to. But that's I got cool. it. I don't know, twenty five years ago or something. You know, just yeah, uh, I've had mine for on, a while. You know, at, at a, at a convention, and I was just lucky enough to get it. My goal was one time, and this was un this is unrealistic, but uh, if I wanted, because that's a, that's an expensive hobby to get into, unless yes. you're buying and then reselling. It's that's not cheap. But I I would love to get Spider-Man pages from all of my favorite artists. So find you know a book that they'd worked on that's a Spider-Man related book, or even maybe where he makes a guest appearance, and and get a page so i you know i wanted to like a bagley i wanted a uh, uh well ramita jr would be nice ramita senior would be even nicer oh yeah uh, you know i've already got burn i would love to get uh something with simonson zek you know stuff like that so, so if i was to go for spider-man i mean john ramita jr was was the artist i read most of him growing up but um i would love to get ron friends or john ramita jr or even Ross Andrew. Ross Andrew, yeah, I'm saying yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's but obviously Steve Ditko would be my dream there on that. Though. Yeah. But, you know, obviously, yeah. you're, you're, you know, that's 
not uh, not going to happen. I'm lucky that I've got some Steve Ditko Spider-Man issues, so original. Yeah. So I'm lucky to have those. <laughs> wow. Oh, so you you actually got the the, the first printings? Yeah, I've got uh, I've some, got but some before issue fifty. Yeah, I've got number twenty-two, and I've got number thirty. It's right behind me, but it's covered. I can't see it. It's my birthday issue. It's the issue that came out when I was born. So, oh. uh, and I've got two versions. I've got one, and then I've got one. I've kind of got a display in my office. Uh, it's where he he's fighting the uh, the molten man. But what, what's the earliest issue you have? Twenty two, where he fights the uh, the circus of crime. Now, did you get that uh, hermetically sealed, or is it's, it just? It's just bag, it's bagged and board. It's not a you know. It's not a it's not a a, a nine point nine or something. It's um it's a you know it's readable. The covers there and there's no missing pages. And it's the covers attached. Did you say it was twenty three? Twenty two. Twenty two. I believe it was twenty two. I'm doing my check in right now just to see how much it is because I want to know if I need to break into your house. <laughs> Good luck finding it. I don't think I could find it. Okay, uh, nine point four grade, one thousand mm. dollars. You'd be better off uh, breaking in and stealing my copy of um, Giant Size X-Men number one. I've got that in much That was the first, first appearance of Princess Python. Yeah. Now, what I'm seeing is that if you get that, what, what would you say the uh, the grading on it is? Is it anywhere near mint or is it... Oh, uh, no, no, no. It's, uh, it's a uh, fair... Or maybe, uh, yeah, it's probably fair to poor. Fair to poor. Okay, uh, so twenty bucks. <laughs> yeah, and I think I paid five or six bucks. I didn't pay a lot of money for it. Yeah, yeah. No, I can understand. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, so as we're talking about fan commissions, yeah, that's what brought us where we are. Uh, there's some really interesting uh, looking uh, commissions that he's done re- recently, which was the the Crime Syndicate, which is you know the Ultraman character, mm-hmm. the Owl Man, and Superior Woman, uh, as they were before the Crisis, uh, the Infinite Earths, and so it's you know so Owl Man's actually got like an owl's head on the top of his mask. It's not like the metal thing that Frank Quitley did for uh, Earth Two. That's my first experience with those characters is reading that or the uh, Quitely and. Yeah, um, is it quietly or quietly? I, I I've always know. pronounced it quietly, but ah. I never met and the man. So he had another one that was Captain America and Puck from Alpha Flight fighting against Baron Blood and Golgotha. Now I don't know is is Golgotha a Marvel character? Or is that one that he had from uh, IDW? That's because that makes sound, it doesn't sound like a Marvel I mean, character. I'm not familiar with that name at all. Yeah, because he did this book Trio, and he did another one Triple Helix, and I think. There was a character like Golgotha in both of those. I've got both of I've got Trio and Triple Helix, but I've I haven't I haven't read them. I've got them, yeah. but I haven't. They're my burn my burn pile, but yeah. I haven't read them. Now he he posts up these commissions every every couple of days. Uh, so I mean, because he'll, he'll sit there and put something up, and then other people will post stuff up that they got from someone else. Like someone had something that Bernie Wrightson did in pencil. Yeah, and they'll put it up, and God, Bernie is just so awesome. But uh, I guess I guess we're ready to move on. Why don't to we uh, large? Right, yeah. Well, why don't we take a break mm-hmm. and uh, plug some shows, some other shows that are on the Fine Two 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 Freaks Network, and we'll come back and we'll get right into issue one.
Yeah, and if you'd like for us to play a promo on your show, just you know, shoot us an email. Let us know where we can pull it down from. Uh, we're always looking to help other people because oh, a yeah. lot of people work to help us. Yeah, and uh, we definitely would like to pass you know pass around the fun. It's all about you know strengthening the uh, network. All right. Well, we'll be right back. All right. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we're back. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And what are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about OMAC, the One Man Army Corps. There's a, a quote in the book that I really, really liked. Um, it's not particularly great dialogue, but it's still fun. I am the One Man Army Corps. I was not created to think, to doubt, only to act, only to kill. You don't get it, do you? He'll find her. That's what he does. That's all he does. You can't stop him. He'll wait for you, Rick Dunner. Let's put our So we got a couple double absolutes there. So, <laughs> all right. And I guess I'll go ahead and give the specifics on the book. OMAC, volume two, number one, because volume number one was the Jack Kirby stuff from the 70s. Uh, this was published in January 1991 at DC Comics, uh, which, let me see, the cover art was done by John Byrne and Alex J, and I think he gets credit on there simply for the uh, the graphic of the name. I don't know that he did it, had anything to do with the art or inking there. Yeah, I think, I think um, the art's all Byrne. Yeah, so I think it's just the um, the graphic for the name. And then uh, John Byrne is credited as the writer, the penciler, the inker, and the letterer. So we will be talking about lettering today. Uh, the book was edited by Jonathan Peterson, executive editor Dick Giordano, and this was published in January of 1991. Now, January of 1991, he was a busy, busy man. Uh, in Iron Man issue 264, he was the writer. I believe John Romita Jr. was doing the artwork. I think it's right. The Mickey Mouse Adventures, issue number eight, he did the cover art on. Ooh, I wonder if Gardner's got that. 
<laughs> Namer the Submariner number 10. Uh, that was when he re re restarted the Namer series. The Dark Nativity. He did story and art. So that and Omac kept him pretty busy. Um, Superman number two. Now this is one that uh, I, I had a hard time finding because there's so many Superman series. But it came from 1990. And it was uh, an Adventures Up title. Oh, okay. And he got credit for inking one of the stories. Then there was the Flash TV special, and uh, he was writer on the story in that. And then, <laughs> what the, number 10, the Christmas special. He did an eight-page Christmas story uh, of Dr. Doom as Santa Claus. <laughs> and it uh, looks like he just did the art on that. He did not write or write it. Yeah. And then uh, there was a number of uh, prof uh, a good number of profile art uh, work that he did for the Who's Who in the DC Universe, number yeah, six. Yeah, he did a big chunk of that. Added Strange to Wildcat. Now, I'm sitting there thinking about the Who's Who, and I remember, I think there was a separate book alone for Star Trek, wasn't there? Yes, it's a two-issue, I think. Because the first time I ever saw John Byrne do anything Star Trek related, it was actually a profile thing of Khan. And I was like, he must, as soon as I saw that, I said, he must really, really like Star Trek because his work on Khan was just like so detailed and just a perfect capturing of that. And of course, now you find out he did all that through photo referencing. Right. And I'm not going to complain about it because it's beautiful. But, well, but that's I, what he'd done there. Yeah, I think anybody, any artist that's going to do a likeness of someone else is probably going to have to use some type of photo reference. I don't think, it, you know, you can draw. Uh, you know, if I would tell you to draw, you know, George Clooney, you know, yeah. I don't think you can, any artist can draw him probably just from memory. They're going to use some kind of reference. Right. It's not. But, yeah, but I mean, the thing is, like, when you look at, at um, the the work that, that I'll use as a good example, Keith Birdsong was the cover artist, a lot of the Star Trek books, Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation books that came out in the 90s. Uh, and every single shot that he did was a photo reference shot. So you could sit there and say, oh, that came from the Star Trek episode Day of the Dove, or that came from the next-gen yeah. episode Brothers, or, you know, it, it just – and Brothers came to mind because it was on TV today. Hmm. So, so I brought that up. Um, but, you know, it, when Byrne was doing photo referencing, you didn't get that. I mean, you know that he did it, but he, he did it so well that – it didn't detract from the story to sit there and say, okay, that image was from this point or that image was from that point. And it was the same thing with Khan. I, I, I couldn't sit there and say, oh, yeah, that's him standing in front of the view screen where Kirk's looking at him or, or whatever. In retrospect, you could probably sit there and, and maybe see that because he's got his arms crossed. I think it's but more it's just a reference. I think it's just more a reference to see what someone looks like when they're drawing him, not as you say – taking a scene well looking at almost what Byrne is now doing with his uh Fumetti books for Star Trek where he's taking go and look and and picking scenes that well this works and um you know and I've you know I've been guilty of that you know as a graphic designer myself I have you'll go out and sometimes you'll see something that looks kind of the right angle or the right design you need and sometimes you'll take it and you'll uh you know you'll fudge it a little bit to uh meet what you need so yeah but I don't think he's doing that. I think he's just looking at it to see what a person looks like when he draws them. Yeah. Well, it's like in the Indiana Jones books. You know, if you watch the read the first two issues, Byrne did those. And yeah. his Indiana Jones looked like Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones. 
And then as you got into the later books, when different artists came in, you know, you never got that kind of consistency. Well, it's it's like the the trend Stop. on the Superman books where, and I, I can't name names because I can't think who they are, that were constantly drawing Superman to look like Chris, uh, Chris Reeves. Oh, Gary Frank. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just getting downright creepy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, moving on to OMAC, uh, I will be reading the synopsis that I actually wrote up. Uh, it's the first time I've ever done a synopsis, so if uh, if y'all start falling asleep or really don't like it, tell me and I won't ever do it again. Um, if it starts one, going if it, it starts going too long, I'll play the exit music so you know that's time to get off stage. <laughs> okay. Uh, book one is titled Past Imperfect, and it is dedicated to Jack Kirby. Um, the story of OMAC takes place in post-apocalyptic Earth. OMAC is a one-man army corps, a super soldier who came from simple beginnings as Buddy Blank, a normal citizen who, uh, who was picked to undergo transformation into a lone soldier to fight against Mr. Big, a megalomaniac who wants nothing more than to rule the world. As the story opens, we see OMAC nearly killed as a pulse bomb practically blows him apart. Brother Eye, a computerized satellite that provides OMAC everything he needs for his ongoing battle with Mr. Big, reconstructs OMAC and his uniform immediately, and three more times afterwards as OMAC makes his way across the battlefield. He fights a giant walking machine called a Corporate Raider and easily brings it down, killing the pilot by simply snapping his neck. Afterwards, OMAC returns to a settlement he's been staying at recently. The people in the settlement are very happy to see OMAC and welcome with uh, some down-home hospitality, complete with a home-cooked with home-cooked food and some uh, female companionship. The next morning, Brother I informs OMAC that Mr. Big's shields are down, which gives OMAC an opening to bring the conflict to an end. OMAC makes his way across the battlefield, this time meeting more of the raiders and flying machines and destroying them as he moves closer to the citadel. Once inside, he meets little resistance as he goes higher and higher into the towering structure. Finally, the OMAC group of scantily clad humans that while young and strong, they do not appear to be bred for fighting. But before OMAC can tear them apart, he's interrupted by what remains of Mr. Big, who is now the near skeletal remains of a man, so aged that he's withered almost to nothing. While OMAC states that this is their first meeting, Mr. Big informs OMAC that they have fought many times and that one time Big thought that he had gotten rid of OMAC forever. However, he now tires of the cycle and wants nothing more than for OMAC to end his existence. OMAC pauses, feeling unsure, then snaps Big's neck in an anticlimactic end to the constant struggle. The story doesn't end here, though. Almost a moment after Big is gone, a portal opens near OMAC and a familiar voice beckons him to come through. As OMAC goes through the portal, he's met by two members of the Global Peace Authority, the very agents that ushered OMAC into the world initially with OMAC's creator, Dr. Myron Forrest, now long dead. The two GPA agents tell OMAC that he that his battle with Mr. Big has just begun, as Big has created a time machine, and that the true battle with Big is in the past. OMAC accepts what they say and enters the time machine, understanding that since he is linked to Brother Eye, that both will be moved through time to the same area that Mr. Big has traveled into the past. Once the machine is activated, OMAC is transported and immediately transforms back into the small, frail form of Buddy Black. Buddy Blank, excuse me. End of book one. Very good synopsis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very well written. Thank you. Now, the things you got to point out for this book uh, is that, first off, 
as opposed to every other comic book, this is done in black and white. And back at this point in time, black and white was not done. Most retailers and fans alike would reject black and white. They wanted color, color, color. Black and white was deemed inherently inferior. These are actually Burns' words himself from his website. Fortunately, this attitude no longer exists. And, uh, you know, I got to say that, that, that reading it in black and white was actually a pleasure. I say this without uh, any uh, agenda or anything, that um, this is probably some of Burns' finest work. I agree. So the, I would agree the art is some of his finest work. It's not. Yes. I will say it's not necessarily some of his best writing. Well, the the, the writing takes some of the the constant tropes that he likes to use. He loves to use time travel, and the everything you know is wrong. Trope. Yeah. And and that's in there, and you know, but there are, there are, there are a lot of interesting things as we look through it. But um, you uh, but it, it, let's go back to the black and white for a moment, though. Now, what I guess not every fan knows about John Byrne is that he is, to a point, colorblind. So he never sees any of this the way we see it anyway. And I think that probably helps him uh, as an artist in in being colorblind because I think it allows him to see depth and uh, shading a little bit differently than we do. And it it makes him uh, highlight that all the more. What do you think? Well, I didn't know. I'll be honest and admit, I didn't know if I'd read that, I'd forgot that he was um, partially colorblind. Uh, it does explain, of course, I don't know if he's ever done, I mean, most of his work is pencil and ink. I don't know if he ever colors any of his own work. So, I, I haven't seen him listed as a colorist. Colorist, I so. Guess, I, I guess we'd have to look at probably books like Babe or... Um, uh, uh, next man to see if he he did any of his own coloring on yeah. those or be, or the work he's doing uh, on his own website with uh, uh, you go ghoul uh, that yes. sort of, he's co- obviously coloring that himself so um, so I don't know you know if he he may you know most artists that are just doing this in pencil and then they're doing it in ink then somebody else is coloring and that, that's their world they're seeing it as black and white so yeah and uh, for I, those that haven't that are not aware of you go you go ghoul. It's a uh, newspaper-type strip that John Byrne had put together a couple of years back. He's made it available on his website in its entirety for you to, to, to read. So if you want to go to burnrobotics.com, uh, you can find it there. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's cute and it's enjoyable, and uh, it makes use of, uh, of classic movie monster uh, tropes. Yeah. Well, and what ties that to this is in that, that strip, you go Google – he has tried to, and you can, it's possible <clears throat> to emulate the process that OMAC has done, which is he used a special paper called Duo Shade Craft Tint paper that is treated in such a way that when you paint on with a certain chemical, duotone-like, no, duotone, zipotone-like patterns will emerge. And if you, different chemicals will give you different lines or different directions of lines. So, if you look at this, it looks like it was all done in Zipatone, but it's done with this uh, dual shade craft tent paper, which is more expensive than than Zipatone. That's why it's not wasn't widely used. But because and they, don't, they don't make it anymore, right? And and but but the he was trying to. Uh, I know Wally Wood, Jack Davis uh, used it a lot in Mad Magazine. Uh, Howard Chaikin used it in his American Flag series. And because you paint 
as opposed to rubbing it on like a dry transfer with Zipatone, you paint on so it has a much more organic feel. But he didn't really get to do that the way he wanted to. No, because they... I understand it. Right, because DC, the deal he made with DC was that if they let him do the book in black and white, they would put out a color trade. So he had to alter, and I couldn't find information exactly how, but he did have to alter the way he did... But, the, yeah, he had to do more or less conventional line work. Right. So that, but what's ironic is that apparently the photostats were lost or misplaced. So then the trade was never produced. And when they were found later behind filing cabinets, they had lost interest in it. So that's why this does not exist as uh, a trade. And I can't find it digitally. So if you want to read OMAC, you're going to have to buy the uh, the original issues. Yeah. Now, as I, as I understand it, what they did was they would send in the, the pages to get photostatted. And um, in the day, in those days before scanning was was the norm, right? Uh, and then after they're photostatted, they, the original pages would be returned to the artist for them to add the gray tones. And you know that was, you know, he had to do it with all four issues, but he never got the original artwork back. So I guess he had to work off the photostats. Yeah, that probably explains why it. Yeah, and it, and I honestly, I'm I'm, it'd be nice in a trade, but it, I think. I would like it as a black and white instead of colored. I don't think it needs to be colored. Yeah. One other thing that I found on his site that that was interesting was um, the time machine that uh, he did on that was the first time that he'd ever used a computer to create a model of something because he wanted to make the, the model consistent from every angle so that you know when, when he did it from, from one angle or the other angle, you were seeing everything as it was meant to be seen. And so he had to, to do the computer mapping of it, and then he would sit there and have the computer turn it, and then he would uh, print those out, print out those shots, and use them to trace right. onto the pages. So it's probably a, 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 a probably a, a type of CAD or something yeah. that he could use. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and you think back then, back to 1990 and 91, you're still looking at 286 and 386. And he would have to have with the math coprocessor to be able to use CAD. Yeah. And I'm really dating myself <laughs> on, on computers. I'm sure it probably took a while for it to render. Yeah. Now, well, you know, looking at the art, when we were looking at the um, the Avengers issues and the uh, Ant-Man story, I know we were very, very critical of the art. And so we went by page by page and we're really out pointing out, you know, uh, almost flaws and such. But we're also pointing out, you know, good things in here. This one, the art is so beautiful. And so fully realized that I, I think we're going to have a lot of. It's almost like doing a movie commentary, and you get lost in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I, I will say when you're talking about the the use of the duo shade and, and everything here is that it makes me think of um, Batman the Animated Series when it first started, and the movie Akira in the presentation because he uses black as the framing of all the scenes so much so that it, it's almost like it was, you know, you, you started off with a black page and just added your light colors, yeah, which is that that's how actually how they did Akira and like the first season of Batman, the animated series. And that's how they got such a dynamic look for those. Well, I've always loved the way Byrne has used black solid, solid planes of black. I'm trying to remember my art history, like color fields, but it's, it's solid fields of black. And you would see this a lot when he would do suits like he might draw yeah. Lex Luthor in a suit, and the entire suit is black. 
shoes, yes. everything. It's just all black, and then all you see is his tie, his hands, and his head. And he does this, just particularly in the third issue, there's a great cover of him in a black jacket. And yeah. That's why I've always loved Burns' Batman, because he draws him as black. His, you know, instead of being gray or even blue, representing black, he actually draws it as a black cowl. Yes. And I think that's, and, and just from a, a graphic design look, the all four covers are, they're pretty wonderful. I'm, I'm not uh, particularly crazy about the type treatment of OMAC. It's very 90s, but it's very clean. It's very simple. It's a nice black background with a single image on it of OMAC in different stages. Even the use of the fingers to represent the issue numbers, I thought was was cute. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, um, the it, it, I don't know if it was all four issues, but at least in the first issue, they had misprinted the price on the cover, and so they had to redo them all. Oh, I and did so not that know caused that, that caused a, a, a delay there. You know, I'm sitting here looking at at the artwork, and I did have one question. Now, the the corporate raider that he fights, that walking thing, it's almost a cross between an uh, an imperial two-footed walker and um, the uh, War of the Worlds kind of uh, creature, or not creature, but uh, ship. Right. That that, uh, they used in the the Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah, it's uh, the first time you, uh, the first, and this is hard to reference because there are no page numbers. I guess it'd be at page three. The first time you see the walker, that is just some fantastic burn tech. That is just burn at his. It's it's. There's not a lot of curves. It's all straight, and angles. It's a lot of detail. It's just beautiful. Yes, and as you go forth and you see where he get brings the brings the thing down and tears the guy out of it. Yeah. And of course, it looks like Hank Pym from Avengers West Coast. Yeah. And then you see him break the guy's neck, and the, the expression on the guy's face is just. Yeah, it's it's jarring to see that. I mean, it's it's a good job what he did. What that he is did jarring. It. If I had one complaint, I might say I I don't particularly like the expression on the guy's face. That that could be. We should also mention that this is a suggested for mature readers. This is a yes. little more mature book. It's not typical books of the day. That that could have been. And I'm not saying it shouldn't graphically be shown, but that could be. It might have been a little more powerful if it was done off screen or off panel. Mainly because I just don't like the guy. His cheeks are puffing out, and I guess I, it just looks odd. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's what's more jarring to me is that it doesn't necessarily look as realistic as, as anything right. else that he's got going on in the book. It kind of takes you out there. Yeah, and and just going back to the first page, that first splash page, talking about a way to open a book. And yeah. one, it lets you know that this is a mature book because it's very graphic. And it is this all four of these books uh, are very uh, cinematic. Great storytelling, and the the first issue, I would almost say it could have been done as a silent issue. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Up until the point where he actually meets Big. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You could, I think, you could have told this. Now, of course, it gives you some back issue, some backstory on Omac, but and and this is one of those tropes that uh, of you know nineties, eighties, and nineties storytelling that that people don't apparently like as much, where he's narrating. I mean, because it's got that kind of. Frank Miller, I'm narrating, narrating myself as I go along. Uh, he doesn't speak, but you know everything he's thinking or saying is in those in those uh, boxes. Boxes as as you go, and you know the the comics today they don't have that. You don't get to go inside the the, the character's mind to know what's going on. And I, I'll say I miss that. And yes, uh, so do I. I miss and that. I missed, in the, I missed editorial notes too. I missed thought bubbles, <laughs> editorial notes. 
And I will say that the the writing in this first issue is a little melodramatic. It's weak. It's it's not his best work. I, I sit there and I look at this compared to the original Kirby books, and it's tame. Yeah. Because the Kirby books are just, you know, balls out crazy. It's just so unusual, and you, you're just like, what the heck is going on here? Because you, you go into the first issue, and you're already into the story. And so I, I, I didn't have that, that problem, because I, I read those before I read this to, to try and see if, if Byrne was keeping up with Kirby. And, I, you know, I found that, you know, yeah, okay, he did, you know, pull a couple pages, but he also changed a lot. So it's the... The two burn tropes that we see where it with time travel and everything you know is wrong. Yeah. Well it's the the fact that you're just kinda of thrown in mm-hmm. is fine. I don't I don't hate that as a storytelling device. I did feel in this that I I felt like I had walked in in the middle of a movie and I should and I understand in any when you're reading comics and any serialized storytelling, you're for anybody's you know, first issue one issue is gonna be somebody's first issue. So you can't mm-hmm. necessarily tell Everything someone needs to catch up in every issue, but right. because this was meant to be a four issue limited, I just felt that I, there should be something. There was something missing. I should know something more about these characters, and I realize as we go, we it, he fills in some of the some of the um, the gaps to it, but it just seemed a little muddled, and yeah. it was just it, it, the, the way I described it. I felt like I had an itch in my brain that I couldn't scratch because I felt like I should. There's something missing. Yeah, and maybe he's referencing too much of Kirby. That it's more of an assumption that well, we we assume you know what the kind of what's going on. So, and that's that's just my reaction to it. I'm not saying that's bad. Yeah. Now I've I've got a couple questions here. When he gets to the settlement, which is an odd looking shanty town kind of thing. Yeah. Except it's got a lot of tents, and I don't know how they're keeping those tents going because that just wouldn't last over a long period of time. I mean, you see a lot of a lot of motorhomes and uh, real shanty buildings, but there's a lot of tents in there too. But the thing yeah. is, like that next panel on the next page where everybody's welcoming him into the settlement, does he have his arms outstretched? It looks like he does. Yeah, it, it, it's like he does, and it it just seems uncharacteristic for him based on how the rest of the story is. is that he would be, you know, hey, come to me. Here I am. I'm the hero. He does seem you know? like he's acting like a savior. Yeah. And it just seems so unlike everything that his character, you know, when you're reading how he does. And I mean, they give him all this food and he gives it back. And then they send him a woman and, oh, no, he takes that. He doesn't give that back. But, <laughs> well, yeah. to kind of back up a bit, I thought, and I, I and I don't know the history of the original Kirby's OMAC, if that was to take place in D, the DC timeline. I know later it was retconned that he was Commandy's grandfather or great-grandfather well i remember in dc comics presents and i want to say it's issue 64 it was a, uh, I think i think either len ween or marv wolfman wrote it and it was um a it, it, this is funny because the story was done in like 1980 so it was before the terminator the whoever in the future sent back this robot called murder mech into 1980 to find the ancestor of Buddy Blank, a guy by the name of Norman Blank, to kill him, to prevent right. OMAC from uh, being created. It wasn't Molesterbot? What? Said it wasn't the Molesterbot? What, is that from the Harlan Ellison story? <laughs> no, that's 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 a reference that uh, Chris Tyler makes. Ah. 
No, no. Uh, it, but it was called Murder Mech, and it was a George Perez did the art on it, and you know it was basically Superman getting to fight Omac, and then ultimately oh. fighting you know fighting Murder Mech. But it was basically a Terminator story. You know, they send a Terminator into the past to 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 kill his ancestor. Oh yeah, that's oh, that what that I'm sure Harlan Ellison probably sued somebody over that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know because when did when did Ellison write write his story? His was well. His is based on the Outer Limits, mm. Outer Limits uh, episode. Show, yeah, so that's from like sixty five, sixty four. Okay, okay. And I've seen the episode, and it, it's very loosely based on. on I mean, that. it's just that 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 whole time paradox of going back and killing someone. Yeah, in the past, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's it that falls in that whole predestination uh, paradox where you right. going back through time, you create yourself to go back in time. It's. But, uh, you know, going back to this, I do remember in this book uh, the mentioning of heroes of the past like Superman and Batman. Yeah. And the, the, so and the, in, in, in this one, you know, they, they recognize the, the DC universe. Of course, right. this is after Crisis, so you don't know which version of the DC universe they're talking about. Well, that's it. Because that, in that scene where the villagers are greeting him, the little girl is holding a Superman doll. Oh, I did not catch that. The little girl with no pants is holding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you are. There you are. She's holding the Superman doll. Yeah. So my There's, question was, why didn't the uh, DC heroes stop Mister Big? <laughs> well, they got, all got killed in the apocalypse. Maybe, or maybe it, it, in this world they exist as fictional characters. Okay. So um, going back to this, in the segment where he's got the woman in his thing, I'm trying to figure out what's under the bed that they're on. Because it almost looks like there's like an arm sticking out or, or a leg sticking out. Well, it looks like legs, but I think it, it's supposed to be sacks of something. Well, yeah, I, I noticed uh, that I didn't really get to pick out everything a lot, but I do see this one thing that's, uh, was it, 657D? And uh, I looked that up, and what I found is it was actually um, a flu vaccine. Oh. D57D, that's right. Yeah, it was a flu vaccine. Uh, that's if if you're looking at the scene where he's awake and she's asleep. Oh yeah, you can see it behind him, and there's other stuff in there. And I was just like, well, what is all this? Yeah, like, yeah well, he's got something that says in. It's like Insulux something, whatever that is. That's yeah. I thought that the scene with him accepting a woman, which I guess he's supposed to be just he's spreading a seed. Yeah, which which I thought was odd. Which that and I don't want to talk about it too much because it'll carry into the next issue. But yeah, uh, he's. That seems, as you point out, him going into the uh, camp and kind of spreading his arms and greeting them, that seems a little too uh, emotional for him. He, sh- he seems right. that he should be a little more distant. And even when he's leaving and he makes note that, you know, Brother I tells him, oh, well, she's pregnant. And he seems, okay, well, that, that's a good thing. I've, I know I've left my, I've, I, you know, at least there'll be something of me left behind. That seems like he's, and again, this will carry into uh, issue two, that I thought that was odd. That that seems significant, but it never seems to be paid for, paid, paid off, unless, again, in issue two, when he's back in time, and I don't want to get into that because we're going to jump ahead. Is he? You know, my note was: is is Omak yearning for something else? Is he yearning for a normal life? He's been doing this for twenty years. He's designed to be basically a killing machine. Does he want something normal? Does he want? Well, I- I think that was the point of this story up to the up to the point where he kills Big, is that he's been doing this so long that it is having an effect on him, and he can see it. It's like when 
you know, he's awake and he's getting himself ready. And, and the woman that, that was with him the night before, she reaches up from behind him as kind of a greeting. And he turns and he's got that. Yeah, he almost kills her. Yeah, you know, and, and you, you can tell even from him that he regrets that he did that to her. He, didn't, he doesn't want it to be so. Yeah. But he knows that, you know, he's the fighting machine. He's got to do what he's got to do. But he's starting to, to get weary of it. Uh, one other thing I was going to say that, that uh, you know, is that, is that when we're talking about this girl here, of course, this is a mature themes book, so you're seeing the backside of a naked woman there. Um, and, you know, they didn't make her, he didn't make her this buxom comic book woman that we're, that we're accustomed to see, you know, not like Frankie Ray or, or, or Jean Grey or any of those that he, that he drew. He'd always made the women to seem a bit more, you know, buxom and sexy, and he definitely yeah. didn't go that way with her. He he made her almost tomboyish in 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 her appearance, or you know, basically someone who had not had enough meals. Well, that's what he says. There's a quote that says, "Her body is like the food the elders left for me, lean and spare." Yeah, lean and spare, spare. Sorry, spare. Yeah, spare. <laughs> okay, I can't read. Um, yeah, but he did a good he did a good job of representing that. You know. Yeah, he did, and he, it's um. He did a good job of, I mean, other than Omak looking particularly superhero-like, uh, everybody well, seems... Omak, Omak, to me, you know, with the face, he looks like a cross between Superman and Captain Marvel. Yeah, and he's, and I, that was one of my notes, that he's got, he's very Captain Marvel-like in that he gets his, his power from, a, like, a lightning bolt, like an energy beam, and yeah. got somebody looking over him. He's got Brother Eye up in orbit. Kind of like the elders, I'm, and I'm not. I've, forgive me if I'm not that familiar with with um, Shazam or Captain Marvel, uh, but at least I'm going off my uh, TV show yeah, experience. Yeah, Shazam the Wizard was the right. the guy that bestowed his power on him at the Rock of Eternity. And, yeah. yeah. Now, you know, this next page after he leaves the encampment, at the very bottom, there's a dead body, and the first time I saw it, I was looking at the boots and I'm going, "Is that like? Is that like? Do, do they recreate Omac completely or?" You know, was he killed and they, and they, and that's enough, that's one of his old bodies, but that's not the case. That's actually somebody else. Somebody else altogether. Yeah, but that's a typical. But, yeah. That's a typical burn boot. He likes to draw yeah. those big, rounded, kind of bulbous, bulbous boots. Yeah, it makes me think of the Guy Gardner boots in in Legends. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's a. Um, and go ahead. Oh well, I'm just gonna skip ahead here. Where is it? Well, I, just, I was going to say on the next page here, uh, the one thing that I, I just kind of look at, he's got these um, in the second panel. They look like ocean mines, like you would see the the, the mines that were set in the water to yeah. I don't know affect the ships. It, it, it to me it was almost because I'd seen him use this particular model before. I think in Action Comics with Superman and, and Green Lantern during the uh, what was the Manhunter saga. In the late seventy, um, late eighties, um, you know, no man escapes the man hunters. Uh, my Millennium, Millennium. Oh, Millennium. I've, yeah, I've got some Millennium. Yeah, stuff, I, I think I think he used the same model for that from uh, the Millennium issue he did with uh, Green Lantern. Yeah, but that's just. I mean, that's it, it. It definitely speaks to me back to something else he'd done before. And I and speaking of that, and I'm just curious, your own thoughts on Omac. Of course, was created in seventy four by uh, Kirby. Yeah. Which uh, I thought that was interesting. He created him, it says, according to myth, I guess, strict, strictly to, he had a contract that he had to produce 15 pages a week, and that's why he created OMAC, and he 
apparently had the idea of a kind of a Captain America in the future floating around in his brain. That's what uh, he pulled from. But can you imagine imagine contemporary artists today producing 15 pages a week? No. That is, that <laughs> no. Is, they can't do 15 pages a month. Is Because he's very much like Gladiator from the Imperial Guard. And I know his first appearance is uh, Uncanny X-Men 107, which is in 77. So I'm curious if Cochran, who I guess designed him and Claremont wrote him, if he pulled from OMAC and then... I, I think that you'd actually need to look at Cockrum's Legion of Superheroes to see if you can find Gladiator. Somebody similar. Gladiator, of course. Well, the thing is, the the Imperial Guard is the Legion of Superheroes brought over into the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And um, Cochran was working on Legion of Superheroes before X-Men. He designed so many of those costumes there. Now, of course, Gladiator was the uh, amalgam of, or not amalgam, but the... Uh, the their version of Superboy or Superman, yeah, uh, from Legion. But I'm I'm trying to think back if there was if Tyrock or one of the other characters had that kind of mohawk going in. I'm gonna have to look 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 around and see if that's that case. I didn't think that up. I didn't think about that. I'm sure somebody's but, probably probably telling us right now while listening to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the page where okay where he jumps onto the and I will say this whole scene. It's this is a silent. Um, it's all silent where he first yeah. starts attacking these corporators. It is just gorgeous. It's there's no dialogue, there's no sound effects. Um, just a nice Kirby crackle and oh, explosions. Nice explosions. And... When he when he when he jumps on the first flyer and kind of maneuvers it to fly into one of these walkers, and he jump and you see him jumping off at the very bottom. He's running, he's just running at the, kind of running at the camera in the background. And if he wasn't such a big Star Trek fan, I wouldn't think any of this. That looks like Vasquez Rocks behind him, where Kirk fought the Gorn. Oh, let me see this. Where he says three to... down, three to go. Okay. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I always referred to that to myself as Shatner Rock. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> Kirk fought the Gorn there, and, and that's what I was thinking. Of course, Lone Ranger did a lot of stuff there, too. It's, yeah, it's... One, one thing I've got to say, and this, it, it's, I mean... A lot of artists do this. I'm, I'm going to go back a couple pages. When he uses that, uh, you know, he, he has that staff or whatever that he's using. He pole vaults? Yeah, he pole vaults. I'm sorry, I don't know if you've ever watched pole vaulters, but the poles bend. Yeah. They're, they're, they're rarely, rarely straight because one end's always heavier. You know, just there's so much weight on it. And, you know, the, when, when he's using it here, it keeps perfectly straight. And you couldn't pole vault. If yeah, it stays the, perfectly straight. Well, that's where the energy you get to pole vault is from the bending of that fiberglass, fiberglass right. and, and, and pole. So that's that's the one thing that's not quite right with that. That's that's just one little thing. Yeah, but you, you know, you, I, I'm, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, you but, could uh, you could uh, no prize that as saying, well, he is super powered, so maybe yes. But then then why does he need the pole vault? Right, but but yeah, brother, I keeps adding strength to him as he needs it. Yeah. And that's that's really cool. I just uh, he takes out the walkers, he takes out the flyers, and there's that one scene. It looks like he's actually flying away from it. Yeah, where he's, he's jumping it, off. It's of it. exploded, and he, yeah, he's upside down, and comes out, and that's just really, really. I I, I can almost see that as Superman or anything else. That's but that's a very even though the vest floats around him. Yeah. yeah. Well, Byrne did that a lot when he was doing Superman, where he would kind of turn his hands in. 
The way he's yeah. got them kind of angled in. I see that a lot in his Superman work. Makes you wonder, are those actual comfortable ways to hold your hands? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I don't know. I'd have to jump off something blowing up to find out. Yeah. Well, you know, I find myself more and more as I look at, at you know, comic book pages and characters doing the stuff in the cool poses. Or in, I find myself, like, standing up and trying to do the poses to see, was there any realistic reason to do that pose? And would anybody actually want to be doing it? And it's not – a lot of times they're not comfortable. Try to – try to. I used to do this. Try to do your fingers the way Spider-Man does when he shoots his webs. Yeah. It's painful. No, I've been doing it all my life because I've been dreaming of being able to do it. So it's kind of a natural <laughs> reflex to me. But the, the the way I look at it is kind of like, you ever seen that um, Sports Illustrated cover where Muhammad Ali is standing over Sonny Liston and he's got his arm and elbow kind of thrown up around his neck? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is like, I actually saw the the film of the movie, of the, of the fight itself. And that moment when he does that is so quick. And so fast, it's not, he's not posing. His arm is actually moving up and then back down. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, what, what, he, what he did in, in just the a few tenths of a second that he did that. And the photographer just caught it that one perfect moment. And he had, I guess, the shutter speed so he didn't catch the blur or anything. Yeah. And you, you, and you could even see, uh, you know, between, beneath his uh, legs, in between his legs, Larry Merchant, uh, who's now on uh, – HBO is one of the the boxing commentators. You can see him standing there, and uh, I just I just thought that was a really interesting thing, you know. And that explains to me, you know, about how the poses and stuff in the comic books work. You know, that's not some of them standing in one pose. You know, there's a lot of a lot of natural action going on in there. Right, and if you see it, it's um, well, if you look in your, uh, if you have how to draw comics Marvel way, that will say there's kind of a there's there's like an apex of a pose that's more dramatic. Yes. <clears throat> you know, it's at the beginning. Or the end of something you're doing, some kind of action. That's more dramatic than if you catch someone in the middle. Yeah. Now, uh, as he gets the, the the page where he gets to the citadel, and uh, the the panel right above where he gets to the citadel, doesn't that look like uh, what's his name from the old movies? Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Edward G. Robinson. It yeah, looks, Edward yeah. G. Robinson. I was just sitting there trying to like, what's his name? What's his name? It looks Though a little. The the previous page looks a little bit like Reed Richards in that yeah. last panel. He's a little squinty, and he's got some yes. he's got some good sideburns there too. Yeah, and you know it it it, it didn't really dawn on me at first. I it didn't really catch the little sideburn Reed Richards gray, right, a little bit of gray, the little bit of gray in there just to show his age. And but uh, I love that Citadel. Oh, and that that's more burn tech. That is clean. It, you know, he looks like Burn wanted to be a, an architect or something. Or a draftsman or something. He it explains why kind of why he's doing a lot of computer stuff now because <clears throat> he seems to have an affinity for it. Yeah, and then he goes in goes into this citadel, and you can just tell it's a gigantic, expansive place. Well, the scene first, he's, he kind of walks past all the art, and you, you see, see a Superman su- there. Oh yeah, at the very and top again. Yeah, yeah, there's another Superman. Uh, where then there's another scene where he is walking along, and you can just see kind of down this um, shaft. That is very much like the scene in Forbidden Planet, where they're looking at all the Krell machinery, yeah. and they have these huge uh, shafts that sink down into the earth. That that was reminiscent for me. It makes me think of um, I, I've got a video around here that was uh, James Cameron's very very first uh, self-produced piece, which was basically you know on a large gigantic spaceship out in the middle of nowhere, and you had 
uh, a guy and a woman working with these large machines, kind of like what uh, Ripley used in um, aliens. aliens, but actually larger than that and, and uh, more mechanical in the arms and everything. I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. Xenogenesis is what it's called. And you can Ooh. find it on YouTube now. And But it, just the depth of that makes me think of the, of the Xenogenesis video and what they did yeah. there. It, it looks a lot like it. You know, the, the setting and scenery around it, the burn tech as he's walking around through there. If you get a chance, check that out. I have to look at that. The, um, yeah. Well, what we learned of... From what we find out later to be the surrogates that he fights, these kind of big, beautiful people... Yeah, those remind me of the his next men because yes. in the beginning of the next men, they're kind of living in an idealistic utopia, and they all they do is kind of have sex, which they call, if I remember right, called dancing. Yes, and that's that's what I'd like. Well, that's what these people could be because they're 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 fit and they're good, they're in great shape, but they're obviously not fighters. Well, you know, this is actually around the time that he was forming next men. Next men, because that's probably ninety three, ninety four. No, in '90s when he'd sit there and said, "Hey, I'm going to go ahead and try and start, you know, try some creator-owned uh, work for 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 you know, one of the other guys," and uh, it was put out later in '91. Oh, okay, then that's so. So yeah, yeah, he was working on on that same time, probably. Probably yeah, or maybe one, maybe one was the genesis of another one. Yeah. Now this next sec- section here, when he finally runs across Mr. Big. Uh, I did not understand the the scheme of the art here. You know, it, it, he's got him there in the center of what seems to be like a spider's web almost. Yeah, some type of you know life support system it, or something. But you know, there's nothing connected to him, anything like that. It just it doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's like is he in a position where he's about to fall or or what? It's just so bizarre. It looks like some type of hammock. Or like a cocoon, or you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he is this thing completely encases him, and that's what keeps him alive. And then when Omac, of course, is coming in in order to interact with Omac, he has to. This thing has to kind of open up like open a flower, up. and maybe that's why he. Yeah, but he does later. You see, he's got some kind of machinery. It looks like it's feeding him. Yeah, it's it's feeding him. It's dressing him. It's do, it's doing all of that. Yeah, um, and and he just. Boy, he, this is the the first time I've ever seen Burn make someone look disgusting, and they actually remain looking disgusting. He does a good job of. Um, he's always been does a good job of doing someone who is kind of decrepit and just kind of wasted away. Uh, he reminds me a little of the way he drew uh, in the She Hulk uh, graphic novel, the guy that gets taken over by the cockroaches. It's um, he's a oh, shield yeah. agent. Um, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't about. think of his name. Kind of like that. He looks just kind of uh, decrepit and decayed. Yeah, and and the whole scene where it's sitting there getting him dressed, it keeps making me think of what's his name's character in Prometheus. Oh, <laughs> I forgot about that. I'd make that connection, but that's a good. Yeah, that is a good connection. As he's being dressed and walked to the alien ship. But, yeah, and then Omac just Pierce. comes up to him and yeah, Guy Pierce. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, Omac just comes up to him, cradles his head, and but you can you can see he really gave it some serious thought before he snapped that neck. Well, and this is I think what again I haven't read the the Kirby stuff, but it it looks like Byrne wanted to make Omac a little more emotional. He wanted to make him. And I've, that's some of the complaints I've heard about the Kirby work is that uh, Omac is very 
um, two-dimensional. And yes. Byrne here wanted to make him more human. He's a human killing machine, but he wanted to make him more more human to the point where he is t- considering what Mr. Big tells him, that, you know, basically without me, there is no you. It's kind of right. the Joker and Batman argument, you know. Yeah, and, and you know, the se- the scene where he's standing there and they're looking at each other and then finally he goes and takes a step for him. The use of black in that whole thing just shows the expanse of, mm-hmm. of you know, that that the, the between them shows all the thought that's sitting there going into going that, what it mind. all really means to him. And then finally, um, when he does, you know, after he does kill him and you, you see that part of him that sits there and says, what do I do now? Yeah. Now looking back on the, on the page right after, well, right before he breaks his neck, and you see the, um, the the people that are still there, his uh, sex slaves or whatever you want to call them. It almost looks like Tom Palmer gave a little once over on the inks there, doesn't it? Uh, it could be. I I uh, I'll be honest and don't not familiar enough with that to to. Yeah, it's just it's just there in the middle of that panel. It, it it's it's not typical of Burn. It's it it almost looks typical of of you know Palmer. Tom Palmer work, yeah. works on stuff. But that's just one small spot, you know. Yeah, and I had a question about, and this didn't occur to me until I looked at this over today, that the surrogates, uh, and this ties into issue two and three, could they be possibly be pseudo-people? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they could be later versions of the pseudo-people. Yeah, because yeah. he's basically living vicariously through, which, and I'll, when we go to issue two, I'll bring up some more of my uh, problems with Mr. Big. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's a situation where when you see Omak kind of deciding what he's going to do, I think he's he's he cannot do he cannot kill Mister Big. I think he may, like he said, he's designed to do this. This is his yeah. goal, lot in life, his goal. So I don't think he has a choice. He may be thinking right. about it, but I think in the end he can't. He can no longer not kill Mister Big than he could. Yeah, but then it, it all of a sudden that portal opens up, and it's like, and then something very like a miracle. It, it it's like a relief, right, to get away from that finality. And the only complaint that I have in this GPA segment is that um, while they're in a placing, you know, it's different. There's nothing to to make it look so different that you that you know it's not like he just walked into another room in Big's Citadel. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And that was that was when I I remember reading this when I bought this back in '91. That I was it really grabbed me coming into it because I really loved the uh, the future apocalyptic aspect and the the the, the artwork just gorgeous. And then it it kind of takes this turn, and I was a little okay. What now? What's going on? And I, I was naturally I was a little confused, but I think that's natural because he doesn't he's not filling in all the blanks. He's going to do that throughout the uh, the other three issues, but yeah, and bringing in the the GPA, the Global Peace Authority, or whatever. Yeah, the Global Peace Authority is kind of one of those wacky things that you're just like, did he really bring them in? You know? Yeah. You know, because he probably could have found another way of presenting the time travel thing without using them, and he only uses them for just these few panels. And that maybe just so he wants to make a connection. <laughs> to uh, the Kirby run. And, 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 and he does that really, really well because you look at the, the Kirby books and you look at these next few pages as they're kind of going over the history things. You see the, the, the pseudo people and all that. 
And yeah, that that looks right out of the yeah, Omac. There's books. some scenes. Yeah, they look like there's some scenes he's he's pulled whole cloth out of out of uh, Kirby's work. I, I I agree. I've I've read these issues probably four times, and I think I get a handle on how the whole story pans out. But then sometimes when you think about it, like well, it doesn't make sense. So some either it's just either I'm being dense or it is a little confusing. Yeah, I mean he needed to get the time travel element going. And I guess he figured this is the best way of doing it, and it's a way of good, you know, a good way of pointing back to the Kirby stuff, but it detracts from everything else. Right. I think I won't reveal what he's trying to do, but when for what he's trying to do, he did it the best way he could. I don't. Yeah. I think he could have done something differently, but for what he was trying to do, I think he accomplished uh, what he was going to do. Yeah, and then at the very end, of course, Omac. Uh, falls to the ground and transforms into Buddy Blank in what looks like a Star Trek shirt. I was going to say that. It looks that's a very Star Trek outfit, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. That's a very Federation. It, it's because of that black collar is is what is what does it, the black collar. It's a black collar pants and the, the kind of the kind of standard shoes. And I do want to say I thought uh, Buddy Blank as a name. I thought I thought that was a very Marvel name. I thought that sounds something right yeah, out of Stan Lee. And I'm going to talk a bit more about the name and the use of it as we get into the further books. But uh, I think – well, let me ask you. Do you have any other thoughts on, on issue one? No. Let me kind of look at my notes and see. I think I've kind of covered everything. No. My, my ads have an overall – I thought it was a nice start. Uh, has a great cliffhanger. Yeah. And and there's something else I think that we definitely have to mention because, you know, we've, we've talked everything else about this. When the book came out, you know, we we talked about the mistake on the pricing, but the book came out at three ninety five. Um, this was a little unusual to us because it was it's a prestige format book. Yeah, it's back just to like paper. Uh, yeah. the the Dark Knight Returns and, and and all that. And the the printing process that they used on it was superior, in my opinion, to a lot of stuff I've seen before. And yet it was three ninety five on the cover because if if I remember right, wasn't Dark Knight Returns five dollars for one of these? Uh, usually, usually the the prestige format format books were like five dollars a pop. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to look. It's either it was either three ninety five or or four ninety five. Uh, but this is what you know. This is what's known as Baxter paper. So yeah, it's a heavier, not as nice yeah. as what they printed on now. But if you compare this to to the oh, what? what was coming books. out today, that was really really good, really impressive. Yeah, ninety one books were what about a dollar twenty five, dollar fifty. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, so, that's about right. Yeah. So now this is a, the price of a normal comic now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I think we've uh, done everything we can on book one. I, think uh, so. I believe we'll take a little bit of a break here, and then we'll come back with uh, book two. Brother, can you spare an eye? And now it's time to sit back and enjoy... The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. Oh no! What will we do now? R2 gave to me find a cigarette! Well, I don't think smoking has grown up at all. Don't be so ridiculous, R2. Thunder rules are for Earthlings. <laughs> All you need is a little rewiring. The children need to be fully immunized. I'm Gower. Want to buy a droid? 
show me what you got. Wampa, wampa, wampa. We picked up something. It's the Millennium Falcon. I am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Growing up Star Wars. Yay! Offer expires May 31st, 1980. And we're back! Yes, we All are. Alright, yes we are. And we are going to cover book two of OMAC by John Byrne. And uh, everything about this book is the same as the last one. That uh, cover art was done by John Byrne and Alex Jay, and we talked before about how I believe Jay did the uh, graphic on OMAC, and Byrne did the rest of the art. The John Byrne was the writer, the penciler, the inker, and the letterer. Now, we didn't really talk about the lettering in the last book, and that's basically because it was done so well that it didn't distract from anything. And uh, now, what most people might be asking is, is John Byrne actually putting in the letters himself? And he's not. He uh, he take well. He takes the letters from a library of letters that he has from another individual, and the name of the person escapes me. Now I'm going to have to go back and look that up. But uh, just just so you know, he's not hand drawing the letters. Right. He's actually pulling them from a pool of letters that he actually has at uh, uh, at, at home that he uses uh, for this sort of thing. Uh, the editor is Jonathan Peterson, and the cover price is three ninety five. Uh, this is OMAC Volume 2, Number 2, published in February of 1991. Now, in February of 1991, uh, he was continuing the work that he was doing on Iron Man as writer in issue 265. And, uh, let's see, uh, Mickey Mouse Adventures, he did another cover of issue 9. Name of the Submariner, he did story and art. Of course, he did OMAC. Uh, Superman number three, that's the adventures of, and he did the inking on that. And then in Uncanny X-Men number 273, Too Many Mutants, or Whose House Is is This Anyway? He did, uh, looks like, one, maybe two pages of art, not the inking, no. Hmm. I'm going to look those up. And then uh, Web of Spider-Man issue 75. Uh, he was the writer on that. And then again, who's who in the DC universe? Uh, he did more profile art. Yeah. I, I looked that up and I was, I was very taken aback by how he drew storm because, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the character storm had gone through a number of, of changes over the years, but she just looked so different from the storm that we'd seen. Cause storm had such a, a round face in the, the early yeah. X-Men stuff that he did of her. And in this one, it, she was almost square jawed. Mm-hmm. And she lost that um, that look. But I, I, I guess it's like taking, you know, looking at. Um, you, ever, you, you ever watch Seinfeld? Mm-hmm. And you look at Elaine in the very early seasons, and you see there's something around her jaw, and it's not unpleasant. It's a, it's actually a very pleasant uh, look around her jaw. But as you watch in the later seasons, that that whatever it is goes away. It's almost like baby fat going away. Yeah, probably as she's. Get a little leaner. As she's getting leaner and she's getting older. And I think maybe that's what he was doing there with, with Storm and that. But, uh, yeah, I had to go back and take a look at that and see, you know, what he did. You know, it's just, like, how much of that. Because I didn't think he'd ever gone back to the X-Men that much to, to do much, except to maybe an annual. So to see that he'd gone back and done at least a little bit of art. Yeah, that, that surprises me. I'd, I'd have to 
or I haven't read that since it came out, but I have to look at that again and see. But I mean, it's it's it it goes along with the style that he's got going in Namor and here with the with the the duo shade. You can oh, definitely yeah. see he's using that there too. So uh, that was uh, yeah, that was uh, interesting. Anyway, uh, going on, I'll uh, give us our synopsis for uh, chapter two: Brother, can you spare an eye? Which I really like that title. The story opens with Buddy Blank having no memory of anything that transpired in the previous book, struggling to understand what is going on around him. He finds himself in New York during the Great Depression. Through a series of small incidents, he comes to be in the care of a kind police officer and his daughter. He has been named Buddy Blank since he did not remember anything before he arrived. Years pass and Buddy is married to the daughter of the police officer that took him into their home. The police officer, however, died in the ensuing years under some form of scandal where it is said he was skimming money from Mr. Bigelow. Bigelow is, of course, the biggest businessman around, with his signs and products everywhere. But he has a job on the docks, but is barely enough to pay the bills. Nightly, he dreams of battle in the wasteland that Omak came from. His wife finds ways of calming him down after the dreams wake him. One day, Benny, one of Buddy's friends, encourages him to go to see about a job at Bigelow's where the job is better, the pay is better, and the perks are just outright crazy. One of which is a room where employees can destroy valuable objects or stab and torture pseudo people. Buddy feels ill after seeing this and leaves, just unsure if he should take a job there when his wife would object so much as they feel Bigelow somehow had her father killed. Buddy then has a series of dreams that connect the futuristic world of Omak to his current life with his wife, all of which makes Buddy think he's losing his mind. Buddy also finds out that he's lost his job. In de desperation to provide for his wife, Buddy goes to take a job at Bigelow's. But when he's introduced to the big man, he's recognized immediately by the boss as Omak. Big has Buddy tortured and taken to the docks to be killed. Buddy's wife and the police show up thanks to Buddy's friend who barely escaped with his life. Big stabs Buddy as the gunfight begins and Big makes his escape. Then as one of Big's goons is about to kill Buddy, Blank transforms into Omak. The process kills the goon as he's burned alive. Omak stands there as Buddy Wife calls out to him, knowing this is her husband. End of book two. Now, uh, note about this book. Uh, the very first page of book two was repurposed from the canceled Shazam project that Byrne had actually started work on. Though the cityscape? Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, it, you can see that as being 1920s or even 1940s. Yeah, that could easily but, be. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but it's, 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 it's pretty pretty cool, the, the whole thing. And, you know, sit there and think that he repurposed that. And you look at the other pages and everything's just seamless and goes right into the story. Yeah. Now... Uh, was my was that my synopsis okay there? I, I felt yeah, yeah, it was good. Just, yeah, it was it was. Uh, I think when we get to, I'm doing issue three and four, uh, which we'll do in part yeah. two of this. Mine may be a little more. I don't want to say dry, but my writing style is a little more. Well, I like I love Hemingway because he writes short, to the point kind of sentences. So that that tends to be yeah. my writing style. So, but you know, Hemingway is actually a. Hemingway is actually a very uh, good writer to bring up at this point in time, and not because of what we're reading here, but uh, because of what's going on in the world. You've heard about this guy that uh, this dentist that shot Cecil the Lion. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I have a cursory information about that, but I really haven't. But basically, 
this is a guy that had a bucket list and he's gone over to Africa and he's done a number of safaris over the years where he's gone and shot different animals. And lion was one of those that he wanted to get and he shot this lion not realizing and not being told that it was a protected lion, a special lion. It was like the, a, you know, a very well-known lion right. in, in that area. And so now this guy, it, basically his life is, is ruined. He's being oh, yeah. threatened by so many people. His practice here is, is, is in the dust in the Zimbabwe. I think it's Zimbabwe they want to question and maybe put him in jail. Now, the reason why I, I bring it up and bring it up with Hemingway is that if you read, you know, the uh, the Hemingway stories, and I guess the short happy life of Francis McComber is one of those good short stories you can point to, where they turn the hunt of a lion into, you know, a, a breath of life, you know, just the, a, a great battle between man and beast. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that Hemingway was able to do. I mean, you're sitting there just reading a story about these guys as they're hunting the lion and your your heart's racing. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about there? <laughs> well, it's it's just and I haven't read a lot of Hemingway just from my but I've read some of my creative writing classes I took when I was in college and I kind of I that style of writing just it's it's similar to have you read any Cormac McCarthy? Uh no, I haven't. I haven't. He wrote uh, The Road, he wrote um, No Country for Old Men and he has a very oh. distinct writing style and his is very kind of short to the point not not a lot of uh flowery language or yeah you know he says what he needs to say and if he needs six words he says uses six words so it's that kind that's, of style i mean I'm not, I'm not being very clear about that so i apologize but uh that well that's right but for your next book report i'd like you to read the snows of kilimanjaro and then we can discuss i know that people are probably going what has that got to do yeah, with there's, comics there's, 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 <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, get on with Moving it. Moving on. Get on with it. <laughs> so, uh, o- Omak, or Buddy Blank at this point, is running around in a Captain Kirk shirt. He, he's very, he looks like he dropped right off Starfleet Academy, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and there's something about that, and I, I guess I'll bring it up as as we go on here. You notice how the, the, the drunk calls him Buddy. Mm-hmm. And then the sergeant later, you know, says, you know, the... He can't leave the leave the missing per, or the it person for a Leave it blank. blank. Yeah, and the guy goes, "Buddy blank, huh?" Now there's a name. So here's a guy that was named in the future, Buddy Blank, and now he's being named in the past, Buddy Blank, and it's almost like a dreamlike feeling to me. And there's a lot in this book that had that kind of dream esque quality, especially. I mean, they actually throw a dream sequence in there. Yeah, but it, it, it you know, like, like that, and him getting his name that way, it just kind of. Now, it, it's it's like something Peter David would do. I didn't think John Byrne would do, you know? Well, it seems, it's again, it goes back to that predestination paradox where you create your, you're creating your own future. So he is, right. he's from the future called Buddy Blank. He goes back in time and he gets the name Buddy Blank so that when he goes into the, you know, when he ages and goes in the future again, he'll already be Buddy Blank to become Omax. So it's, it's, um, it's the quote... And I had my notes that they quote Sarah Connor, a person could go crazy thinking about this. So it is, yeah. it's that whole, it's, yeah. it's time travel will, uh, sometimes when you think about time travel, it just all, it's like water. When you think you've got it, it just all slips away and you can't, can't grasp it again. But uh, I kind of want to touch on something, just I thought about this, when you're going back to this splash page where you were mentioning about this is repurposed from Shazam. I was kind of surprised that his New, his New York um, cityscapes if you look at his Fantastic Four run, and 
I may be mistaken, but I think it's when they come back from the negative zone, so they've got the different, they've got the black and white costume. When he started drawing New York, especially if they were flying around New York or uh, anything, or you saw the cityscape in the back, he was using a, it's like a photo reference. It was almost taking a photo, and what you would do is if you take it into Photoshop and you would change your levels so you've got a black and white image. Yeah. And then he, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, he was, I know yeah. So instead of drawing buildings, he was using that, and it's not. It just, right. it just makes a more detailed background, which it looks good. I like it, but it it suddenly he, it he also looks doing a little lazy though. It, it it all also looks a little lazy when he did that. Yeah. He did that a lot in Alpha Flight too. Yeah, I don't know um, if I'd call that lazy, but it's, I, well, the thing is, it looks lazy. I'm not saying that it is oh, lazy. Yeah. It's probably a lot of work. It's probably a lot of work, but I know that the you know the average guy sitting there reading that's going to go, oh come on, all you did was take a picture and, and, and color trace it in. over it, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know that's not necessarily what happened there, but that's what the that's what the average guy is going to sit there and think. I'm not saying average comic book guy, I'm saying right. average guy. And it, I think it just shows that like Kirby himself, Byrne was experimenting. You know, Kirby started experimenting with the collages, the photo collages in Fantastic Four. Yeah. That yes, I think that's and, just burn experimenting. You know, the, yeah, these these first couple of pages where he's just running from the the bomb and and, and everything, the art is just seamless and perfect. And I especially love when the police car pulls up. That light and effect. And you got the two lights coming in there. Yeah, the light effect. Yeah, that is just really beautiful and awesome. That is a real. Then, yeah. Oh, just the the panel right before it, where it's it's all very stark black and white, who are the bums running away. You really yeah. have to have an understanding of lighting to pull that off. It's very, to use a, um, a uh, art history, it's very chiaroscuro, which is very light and dark. I had not noticed that, but that is, that's really cool. That is really cool. Good use of negative. Now, I love, the, I love the, 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 the cop uniforms from that day because they, they, they almost seem like dresses in, in some ways. Yeah, very. And again, another good use of solid fields of black. Black, yeah, yeah exactly. Now that uh, that one cop there that um, is laughing, you know, about the buddy blank name, does he remind you of Clancy Brown, especially in the frame above? Makes me think of Clancy Brown when he was the um, the, the you know Hadley in uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that haircut. It's the haircut and just the uniform and and that jawline. Yeah, yeah. But it, and the thing is, this other cop, the one that takes him in, he looks like Uncle Ben in that bottom panel. <laughs> he does. He does. It's Chief O'Hara, probably. And then there's the other guy there, that I guess the doctor, who reminds me of the, one of the doctors from uh, Superman comics, you know, when Lex Luthor's one of the scientists. Yeah. But. Uh, oh yeah, that's. Wow. Yeah, I guess that's the same doctor that shows up later in the issue three. Yeah. Yeah. Now the the wife in this, at first, especially when he first walks in and meets her, I thought she looks like Lois Lane. But they keep the hair shorter, and as the story goes on, her character evolves enough that uh, she definitely is not Lois Lane. Especially her conversation with the neighbor lady. Right. This. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I think the writing in this issue is 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 better than issue one. It's more natural or more organic it it uh, seems to fit the characters a little better it reminds me of early you know the the early scenes in godfather 2 all of this i mean just the theme around the story the wanting to provide for the family and everything yeah it's very godfather 2 and buddy 
you know, his the character model for him sometimes reminds me of Superboy. He's and it yeah, and that's interesting. If you see him the way he's drawn and when you first see him compared to later in the book when he's been there, his face looks like it fills of course his haircuts change, but his face looks like it fills out a little more. He yeah. looks like he changes, um so it's not just the same static character. Yes. Almost like he's, he, he, he's fitting in with that time period better. Yeah, and he's growing and changing. Right. So, Now, did you ever, ever have a dream where you saw yourself? I've had dreams where I see myself, but I don't look like myself. I know I'm, that's, that's who I am, but I don't look right. like I look. And, and that's the thing here, when he's having the dreams of Omen, and of course he sees you know, himself in shadow. And I guess, you know, you could do that, but I just I just never think about seeing myself in a dream, you know, like that in any way, form, or fashion where you see yourself. It's just one of those odd things to me. Whenever I see a dream sequence, I'm always asking myself, is that how I dream? And 99 times out of 100, it's no, it isn't. It's not, but, but, it, I, it, but it, it's a device here, though, right, I understand right. the use of it. So. Right. And then the whole thing with the, with the wife. And once again, you know, I guess the term spare and lean is uh, is the term that that they can pull forward. Well, it is the uh, it is the depression. So yes, yes, they would be. Yeah. Uh, and, and and then I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's it. That's that's he's. I think I want to say his care his character models for this time period are very effective. Yeah, and it's because it's the clothing that does it. Yeah. It's the clothing that makes all of it really, really interesting. But yeah, it, it, even the the body, like like her body there, it's, you know, you can tell that he's sitting there thinking these things through. Yeah. The next segment when they go for the um, to check out Bigelow's, and now I, had you were you aware of any of this stuff from the original Omax series when you read this part? I, no, I had. That's why this is all. It's like I. It, it's what it felt like. I should know this. This is something yeah. that I that as as a writer he kind of expected me well you should have some prior knowledge of this and I didn't and some of this is not explained later even once you read the entire um, the rest of the series so it's a little confusing yeah because like in the, in the stories you know in the future stories where, where Buddy Blank worked before he became OMAC you know they had these rooms where you could go and just vent your anger you know you could you know stab something or smash it with a hammer you know destroy expensive things yeah and they got this one thing where they got these pseudo people on a rail that you can kick in the butt. <laughs> so that's <laughs> always and and the way they got the mouths on those things is just creepy. That is that's a little and that's out of the Kirby. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. That's I thought. Well, I'm glad to know that because I this to me felt a little like Byrne was trying to make some social commentary, which and which he does later, which I think is a little heavy-handed. But um, I give kudos to Kirby for at least trying to. Kirby, if anything, was always trying to think outside the box. Yeah. And, I mean, he, he definitely uses it to move the story along where Buddy doesn't feel well after seeing all that, and you can understand why, because, you know, he'd been through all that before. And then you come up with the scene where he's talking with his buddy, Benny, um, over a beer or coffee or whatever that is, and you look in the bottom left-hand panel where the, there's that, that old black man sitting yes. up, and that is just an amazing little piece there yeah that's nice artwork so you know the other thing i noticed here aside from the guy there and i think it's part of what he does to add to that depression era look is everything 
you know, up above, like the, the, the shot of the tavern. And you got the little guy with the sign that says, please help me. Yeah. Everything is just so cluttered. And, of course, there, you know, he's got dirt and crap on the ground, you know, trash and puddles of water. And there's signs everywhere on everything. The only thing I wonder about is, because I'm not exactly sure what year this is supposed to be. There's a beer and ale sign. And I'm wondering, you know, wasn't the 20s all Prohibition? Prohibition, did it end in 29? I'm trying to think of my Boardwalk Empire. Did it end in 29? <laughs> Could have been, could have been. Because this is supposed to be, he arrives in 29 because he's there 10 years and it's 1939. Yeah. When um, he comes he comes across Mr. Bigelow, so. Yeah. I think. I do like, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I think Prohibition was over by then. Yeah. Now, I do like that um, OMAC, of course, uh, does not care for racism as that, uh, as the other guy starts, you know, talking about not having to work with, uh, as the guy says, not having to work with no coloreds down there. Yeah. OMAC, you know, shuts that down pretty quick. I, I, I'm glad that they, they throw that kind of morality into him. Cause, cause you know, something like that, that's not, um, probably not something he got from his wife. That's just something that's in him. Right. And I, th- and I think also, if you look at that scene where he's talking to Benny. Yeah. And in the tavern. And then it, and then it goes into his, where he's telling, I guess, is he telling me about his dream? He's telling about the dream he has, where he's in the future, and he, and he's having a scuffle with this uh, other worker. These two scenes, one in, in present day, his present day, and his dream in the future, I think show that he is uncomfortable with the society norms. So when he goes with Benny to Mister Bigelow's, he doesn't really like this room where the guy, where the guys are just trashing stuff, or they have the where you can kick the people. He that unsettles him. And that yeah. further shows he doesn't. One, it shows that he he has a conscience and he has a moral center, but it also it shows he doesn't belong here. It it, it shows that he isn't more. He's a, like an alien to this time period. And the same when he jumps to the future, he doesn't seem like he fits in with that future either. So right. that just shows. I don't know if that's to to heighten or just to emphasize that. You know, because he is Buddy Blank, he's kind of a corporate drone that he was picked to become this uh, person who's more as OMAC. Or if it's a, just it's more commentary on being, uh, don't go with the flow. You know, don't be a corporate drone. Don't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Doesn't this Lila character really look like a Jack, like Jack Kirby came in and sketched her out for him? Is this the the one that's coming out the door? The, the, the pseudo girl. Um. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, when he when he's first talking to her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder if that's something Burns doing on purpose to make her. Oh, look. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's that. That's the the charm of it all. And then you got those guys that that come in there and they got those funny goggles on, and they almost look like a- any men or something, you know. But yeah, uh, that's a tip. That looks like a typical kind of a, a, a minion type a jumpsuit. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, he sees Lila and, and then the other, what, Susie and all them hanging up on the wall. And that's right out of the OMAC series that, that Kirby did. Oh, yeah. I know. Um, I was surprised when I was flipping through with the legs poking out. Kind of looks like, like yeah. they were packed in styrofoam or something. Yeah. 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 That's exactly. That's, that's a scene almost exactly out yeah. of Kirby. That gave me chills. And then it's, you've got the, the, the kind of double fake here where it's, it kind of reminds me of the scene in. American Werewolf in London. Exactly, as exactly what I say. Where he wakes up from a dream, and you're not woke up from a dream. Yeah. So that's um, 
And then when he picks the his wife's head up, that's just creepy. That's, that's a little, yeah, that's a little to the point. And this whole, uh, I meant to bring this up earlier, this, his, this whole issue is very reminiscent of two Star Trek episodes. One from Next Gen Season 5, Inner Light, where Picard... Yes. Yeah, lives a whole lives life. a whole life as as an as alien race, and it's a little like uh, third season next uh, next uh, original series Paradise Syndrome where Kirk becomes Kirok, Nirvani, yeah, and he mar- you know he so he's living a different life, and it's almost in both of those stories the life they live, which is like the false life, is this the life that they subconsciously really want? Does Card really want to settle down, have a wife, have a kid? And live a more simple life. Does Kirk want to leave all the pressures of being a starship captain and just find, you know, live with a woman he loves and raise their kids? So, in both cases, it shows they'd have to turn their back on the life they know. Right. Almost, and, and almost like they. Let's go ahead. And and that's what he would have to do here if he was to be Omac. He has to turn his his life on the on, on what turn his back on the life he knows. Now. Talking about Paradise Syndrome for a second, I remember that uh, I watched that the same. I watched a repeat of it one day, the same day that I actually sat down and watched Dances with Wolves, <laughs> and I was surprised at how similar the stories are. Oh yeah, I never thought of that. Yep, just thinking that asteroid is the encroachment of man. And, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it and it to go back what you just mentioned about they would have to turn their back on almost they have to turn their back on their destiny like they're well I'm the only one that can do this so either I choose the life I want or I do you could say I do the right thing and choose the harder path but ultimately it's more it's more of a self-sacrifice to do what you needs to be done or should be done than to live the life and that that goes back to Picard and uh, the Kirk that they, you know, their ship and their career is their life. So they really have, they kind of live a lonely existence because they can't allow anyone in because of the job they have to do or choose to do. Right. Right. Which brings up the argument they used in Generations. Right. Where Picard had to break away from, from all that. You know, when you put someone in a scenario where all of a sudden they have a kid, though. That would change the entire dynamic, and you never this not didn't happen here, and it didn't happen with with you know Kirk really you know Miramani died and lost the baby before the baby could be born. Yeah, and um, the the inner light, of course, he did have all that, but he lived the full life and got to the point where he was going to die anyway. Right before he left and turned his back on it, and so he had that that full that that fulfillment of seeing his children grow up and and seeing you know grandchildren. So it's like. None of them ever gave them that that Sophie's Choice moment where they you know had to give up the hard dream. Right, and, and in a way, anything. Right, and in a way, Picard got to kind of eat his cake and you know, have his cake and eat it too because he got to do he got to experience what it was like to be a, right. a family man. But then then he gets pulled back, and I always thought you couldn't recover from that. Just he seems recovered and like you know, oh, I'm fine in a matter of minutes or hours. I think that would screw you up so much that. But- that was the thing that always bugged me about that episode is that, you know, the following episodes, they, they did very little to point back to it. I mean, every now and then they'd have Picard playing his flute. Yeah. Which shows that, it shows that he carried that with him. But you should see him as someone that has lived a whole other life and has got all that wisdom and all that, that, that in him. 
and it's almost like it faded away like a dream. Right. He would probably be a little more softer, a little more emotional, a little more, I don't want to say uh, sympathetic. So I think he but certainly has passion. I think he certainly has he's, he's compassion. But yeah. He certainly can, they do write that into the series that later he especially the way he deals with children that he right. um, he softens <laughs> on that yeah but this and, is not a Star uh, Trek this is not a Star nope. Trek podcast nope and the thing is is that this is that this story borrows a lot from uh, several different genres and Star Trek is one of them oh yeah it borrows some- um, but it, it 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 and the thing is is that there's a lot in this that is almost mundane. But regardless of that, it's still interesting. It's still beautiful. And it's telling a, a very compelling story in, in, in my mind. I know that you're not as endeared with it as I am, but I guess it hit me at the right time. I, I wasn't. I, this, uh, the artwork really saves it for me because the artwork is, the artwork is just beautiful, especially when he's doing period stuff. It just shows Byrne he can, do, he can pretty much do anything. Right. Um, but it, it just left me a little cold. I think I... You, he gave me this great future kind of action set piece in the first one, and then suddenly he kind of yanks it away from me. So that was my, I think my reaction to it. I'm like, well, uh, I want to go back. You know, don't don't change channels on me. I want to go back to what I was, you know, what I was looking at. But and I think Mr. Big or Bigelow, as he is in this, yeah. he's a little. He's painted with some pretty broad strokes. He. He seems to be evil for the sake of evil. I wasn't quite sure what, as later he explains in the other issues, what what was his goal? I mean, he yeah, he just does he just want to? He seems at one point he just wants to destroy the world, so that he doesn't want anybody else in it. Does he want to just take over? Does you know he doesn't? Yeah. He Burn wrote. I thought Burn wrote Doom, Doctor Doom. Did some great story arcs with Doctor Doom and wrote that villain, you know, so well. Yeah. That this one is really. Uh, pales in comparison that being said i think that when the wachowskis made the matrix movies when they made their sequels Mm -hmm. that they borrowed from this guy when they made the the what do they they call him the architect oh yeah one the the one that captain exposition to to Uh uh, neo i almost feel like they borrowed borrowed that from from the vision of mr big here mr big definitely monologues yeah, he does. He does, and, and and the way he explains things to Omek, I'm just like, okay, yeah, that's that's it, and and I'm just waiting for him to say please or you know <laughs> something like that guy in, in the Matrix. It was just uh, well, it's it's kind of that monologue gloat. It's yeah, yeah, I've got you where I want you, uh, and he's he's also he's paranoid. He's convinced that Omek is and Omek hasn't. Of course, he's not Omek. He's still buddy yeah. blank, and he has no memory. Which I think that's odd because I've noticed that even in the Kirby work that when he becomes Buddy Blank, he has no memory. It's not like Shazam and uh, uh, Billy Batson. I mean, I don't know. Does, does Billy Batson lose his memory of Shazam when he becomes Billy Batson, or he retains it? As I understand, he retains it. That's what I thought. Um, but he, but seems- he just he doesn't see it through the eye. You know, the same eyes though. You know, yeah. the the it's like you're talking about in Legends where he doesn't. You know, it, it, once he becomes, you know, Captain Marvel, all of a sudden, oh, he's got the wisdom of Solomon and he understands something. Right. But by being a kid, you know, and, and, and all the hormones and everything that's going on and, you know, the, the understanding that a kid has, he can sit there and feel, see, all, see all that, but he's seeing it through almost like another's eyes. Right. But if he'd say he fought Superman as Shazam when he became Billy Batson, he would know he fought Superman. Superman, yeah. And yeah. Buddy Blank seems to, once he becomes Buddy Blank, he has no memory 
of yeah. Omac at all. It's almost a, yeah. like a Dr. Jekyll well, and... They did explain that, though. They did explain that, and that's why, that's why the Big has that device on his wrist. That, that device allowed, it contained every memory and thought that he had prior, so that once he went through the, the time change, boom, he was able to load his mind back up. Right, and I thought that was very interesting now, that, that, that Byrne did that, that by time travel, by skipping the years that you're not experiencing, because he said, that's what he said, memory is only yeah. a series of, when you jump those years, naturally you'll forget, and I, I thought that's cool, but I'm, I mean, in, in some of Kirby's books, when, when he becomes Omac, he he does like, he's like, hey, I'm Buddy Blank, I need help. He, he doesn't seem to realize that, hey, I was Omac and now I've transferred back to Buddy Blank. Yeah. So... What I, what I find interesting here is that Big has Buddy Blank, all right? What would hurt him to kill Buddy Blank? Wouldn't that just kill Omac and end the whole thing? Why does he feel the need to keep him alive when he's the most dangerous person to his plan? And he's in the weakened state that he is. He, again, this is why I've read it several times, he... He seems to want to keep him alive because he seems convinced he needs to kind of solve the mystery of if is Buddy, what's he up to? How's he gonna? How's he? He thinks he can somehow alter yeah, his he, plan. And, and that, yeah, I guess because the way the way they wrote Big, the way Byrne wrote Big was basically he sees Omac behind every corner around mm-hmm. you know around every corner yeah. behind every yeah, and 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 that he sees plans within plans from Omac. That that Omac would basically find a way to defeat him, no matter what it was. Did you catch the Daily Planet? I did not. Is that you know what I'm talking about? Now you see the the, the after Big has his thing, and then you see the page where the wife is talking to the two police officers, right? Yeah. In the uh, look, in the look on the other page, on the opposite page at the very bottom, the uh, newspaper truck on the far right has got oh, Daily Planet on it. I did not catch that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, so it does take place, yeah. Well, I think, well, of course, at this point, Mr. Big doesn't realize that they're in kind of a loop. That they're in this temporal loop that keeps repeating itself. It's not until, I think, well, we're kind of, we're kind of, we kind of saw the end of the film, and now we're kind of going back. So it's not explained until later, but I was just really confused the whole time about what, what Big's motivation was, what, um what his final goal was to be other than just to be to take over and it seems to be a commentary on maybe corporate consumerism because he he's yes. just he's and as buddy's called he's just a corporate nobody and the uh the fact that the walkers are called corporate raiders so i don't know if that just comes from i guess that really all comes from kirby's work i need to i need to read, some of that i think if i read kirby's issues a lot of this will make sense yeah no no i'm i see what you're saying now, okay, still, the, he goes through that, and then he decides to go ahead and have uh, Buddy stabbed. And the guy stabs him down almost below the belt. Yeah, he almost stabs him in his groin, yeah. Yeah. And right there, that's the last place he stabs someone, because it'll take him the longest to die from that. Yeah, well, that's you see that trope in film all the time, where they get a, they'll get a gut shot, and they die immediately. It's like, no, you can live for hours yeah. with a gut shot. <laughs> Yeah, reservoir dogs. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the the whole thing. But when you know the the guy that stabbed him is 
basically the cops are come out and he's trying to get away and then Buddy grabs him by the by the leg. He's got the bloody hand grabbing him by the leg. I thought that was a, a really good thing. And then of course he transforms and fries the guy. Yeah. And that was a great that's a well that's a great scene where she's running up on the dock and you can tell the way it burns it's just all that white that that's supposed yes. to be this blinding flash. Yeah. Uh, and then it's it's interesting that when you see the body of the guy He's not completely charred. He's charred on one side, kind of in a. In yeah, because kind of because because what was right there directly in the in the line of I mean it's you know that 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 line of heat coming right. off of Omac, and so you could tell a part was turned away, so that part didn't get burned. Yeah, it's kind of like the scene in the Terminator films where that sphere opens when they're going through their time time uh, displacement, yeah. and it yeah. kind of it disintegrates anything that that sphere touches as it enlarges. Right. Which Buddy is, uh, or Omax, I wrote this for, really goes for issue one, but the way he, he responds, I thought that's very um, video game-like. You know, he keeps dying, Brother Eye keeps responding, you know, he's like respo- uh, yeah. respawning, that's the word I'm trying to say, uh, like in video games. And when you sit there and you look at the story of Omax, you look even back at the Jack Kirby Stuff that was before video games, it had a very video game quality to it. Oh yeah, very. Because it had that unrealistic plastic look about it. Which yeah. is amazing is Kirby if that if it really is that he was just kind of throwing something against the wall because he had to fulfill this contract that uh, just shows you that even when he's I don't want to say he's not trying, but even when he's not necessarily an idea he's really committed to, he still produces yeah. some pretty cool stuff. But you know, in, in, on the other side of that coin, Byrne definitely was very, very committed to this book. Yeah, committed he's, to the series. He just he gave it his all. I feel. Yeah, yeah. His uh, I, and again, I, I think the the writing is the the really only weak spot of this, and it, it, mm-hmm. it's a little convoluted. And maybe that's because I wanted something a little more straightforward. But because time and time travel stories are. They're difficult because you can yes. really they can get very muddled and muddy uh, very quickly if you don't really have a very airtight kind of plot to explain everything. But I think it and ends on a great cliffhanger, and because you it's it's this is like again I'll say this all these these two issues here but very cinematic. I mean that you can feel that that is an episode of like a TV show. Yeah, and you got to like wait what's going to happen next episode? You know, next episode. So <laughs> yeah, now. That's uh, really. Uh, do you have anything else to say on on book two there? I don't think so. Let me. Um, I think we covered almost everything yeah. there. I well, I'll, I'll kind of bring this up as one of my thoughts of part of I thought was what I perceive as a weakness of the story is that because Byrne is trying to kind of tie up loose ends from Kirby's run on OMAC without really rebooting it back before that you know people called it that or completely retelling it, it seems it, it kinda it's hampered or weighed down by its ties to the previous storyline. And I like it to Superman Returns. I felt Superman Returns was saddled with trying to be tied to the Donner movie mm-hmm. without telling its own his own story its own story, but trying to tell its own story. So it was it was almost it was hampered by trying to do two things. And it should have been just either retell it and ignore one or really embrace it and make it a, an actual sequel. So that was kind of the vibe I got that it was, it was again, what he tried to do by 
preserving both his work and Kirby's work, he did the best he could with, with trying to do it that way. I hmm. kind of would have preferred if he had maybe retold it in his own. Yeah. I know he didn't want to destroy any of the work Kirby did, but I think he could retell it, and that still exists. So, Yeah, or he could have said it was completely separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, a completely separate retelling, but it definitely wasn't. Right, which I know Omak later... I know he uses him in his third series of Generations, Superman yeah. and Batman. And I know he later, there's an OMAC series by Greg Rucka, correct? That it's more of a computer program or a robot or... Yeah, I, I know there's a new a new OMAC, a newer OMAC series, I think from 2008. But um, I, I haven't really looked at it. I haven't either. I know Batman somehow, it's it's a program or something he creates. That's right, yeah. It's something. supposed to be some, something related to Batman. That's, yeah. That's true. But it's not this, this character. It's not... Yeah. Uh, Mohawk character. Okay, so that is the end of book two, as I see it. We'll be covering books three and four in a later episode, uh, our next episode. And so I think maybe we could take a little break and then come back with the uh, email. Yeah, we've got some emails, so we'll we, uh, we'll take a break and we'll come back and... After these messages, <laughs> we'll be right back. Oh, hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jif S. Fishman, Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside, sipping our brandy, and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith. Stan Lee and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or the equally important bout of the Snorks versus the Smurfs? And, of course, the titanic duel between Archie and Jimmy Olsen. And you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this. But I always thought Transformers fans were intelligent and literate, so they should see that Galactus has to be the winner. Like, he's hungry. Oh, I'm so <laughs> hungry. I'm going to get weaker, and, 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 and Reed Richards is going to be able to beat me. I don't know anything about Rob other than... Uh... He was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, it's, uh, I mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the out of the Silac. You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put back in it because he's a bitch. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> oh, ah, 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 no! No! She, oh, I tap she, out! I tap out! You are a sick, out. sick man. I'm not familiar with the last one. I need. I might um, have to hit Google Image Search here. Yeah. So won't you join us for some witty discourse? A fine snuff and a tincture of sherry as we debate over these all-important matters here only on Comic Book Fight Club. You can find the show at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comicbookfightclub. And we're back. Woohoo! 
Okay, well, we've got some uh, reader email and reviews from iTunes. Well, we got one review in iTunes. And I hope that uh, any of you listening here, if you're pulling from iTunes, that you'll go ahead and, and write us a review on there. Um, we do seem to be our, our first two shows, well, uh, I guess three shows really since we were on Back to the Bins, uh, all came out pretty popular as far as it can tell. But we don't actually have the numbers yet on, on the downloads. But, but I'm uh, sure I'm they're astounding. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> that being said, our first customer review off of iTunes is from Geekarino. And he says, the show's a lot of fun, and the hosts have good chemistry. Hope they touch on obscure burn stuff like Space 1999. And yes, that is the plan, that sometime down the road we'll touch uh, Space 1999 and the Charlton work, uh, Doomsday Plus One. Definitely. Uh, the Rog, Rog 2000 from uh, E-Man. And uh, yeah, there's a, there, uh, maybe even if we can find it, uh, Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch. I'm having a hard time locating that stuff, though. So uh, I might be. have to set up a mailbox if someone wants to help me out here. Yeah, that may be a physical copy or somebody. Yeah, if if, if anybody uh, can point me in the right direction, I'd really appreciate it. You can you can just you know private message me on Facebook or or whatever, and we uh, you know we'll see. Anyway, uh, going on from there, uh, our first email is from Mark Adams of Mark's Mess versus Atlantis Attacks podcast. Uh, the title is Getting the Third Degree, and he says, "I must admit." I was overly excited when I heard about a podcast about John Byrne comics. I mean, who does not like a John Byrne comic? Everybody here does. Now, I have heard it in all its technicolor. I declare it a good podcast. The natural rhythm between the two of you kept the pace going, and I was surprised when you told us that this is your first podcast. You sound like old hats at this. You knew your stuff and obviously put a lot of preparation into the episode. I'm looking forward to future episodes and exploring things like Generations, She-Hulk, and Marvel Team-Up. But whatever you cover, I'm very confident it is in good hands. So keep up the good work. Mark Adams, Mark, Mark's Mess versus Atlantis Attacks. And Mark was also kind enough to send us a recipe for his wife's hobnobs, which is some sort of British, looks like a... It's a cookie, it, I think. It's a cookie, Yeah. And uh, so now you, you posted this recipe on Facebook, didn't you? This is on our Third Degree Burn Facebook page who doesn't have a lot of members because I don't want to – I couldn't find out how to invite people. I can just automatically add them to the group, and I don't want to be that forward and say, hey, I'm just going to stick you in our group. So if you want to be in the group, let me know, and I'll certainly add you. But it, it gets – when I post something there, it gets carried over to my page, which people then Tutu Freaks can see. So When are you going to add me? I've added you. Really? You were, you oh, were the, that was so nice. You were the second person I added. <laughs> I know. And then second, I added my who's wife. The first? <laughs> then I added oh. my wife. I was the first, of course. Okay. Then I well. put my wife and, you know. <laughs> and then, uh, somebody else has asked to be to join, so it's I just don't want to naturally start putting people in there. I don't want to be presumptuous and say, "Hey." Right. You know. Right. Okay, our second email is from Dale Russell. The title is I Was Burned. Uh, he starts off, number one, I also live in Texas, San Antonio, and telecast coasters just sound funny. Now, Dale, I, I know that you're pulling this from the first show, and I got to tell you, I don't remember the telecast coaster comment. I, it's just not coming back to me. It's Tim, not. I'd, have, I'd have to listen to it again because it, it's not. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, help us out, shoot us another message and, and kind of remind us. I may have to go back and listen to that just to see what it was. Number two, I got burned in the very early 1980s. Burn is my favorite artist. 
To this day, I'm a sucker for his art style. When Comixology had a sale on Vern, I bought his newest stuff. The story was, well, but I could look at the pages all day. So I'm assuming he's not big on the stories. And I'm, I'm hoping that he's probably talking about like Triple Helix and Trio as opposed to Star Trek. Because I, I, I can understand why, why people may not be as, as uh, big on that as they would be on Star Trek. Because it, it's almost like a, a throwback it to is. Uh, yeah. 80s, 80s superheroes rather yeah. than something that's done modern day. And number three, of all the comics he did that you all mentioned, you did not mention his Alpha Flight run. Issue one is still one of my favorite issues ever. Thanks, Dale Russell. Now, as far as Alpha Flight goes, you know, I liked Alpha Flight, but I did not get on on the ground floor. I mean, I... I uh, started X-Men at 132 and took that, you know, for the rest of his run and kept on for a while longer. I followed his Fantastic Four run, but I actually did not start picking up uh, Alpha Flight until much later in the 80s. And I was going to uh, two different comic book shops, Lone Star here in in Fort Worth and then uh, a, a shop called Heroes Workshop that uh, is, is closed down. It's no longer, uh, no longer open. And that was a great place too, and I had friends that worked there. So, uh, but that's that's where that where I was going to pick up my back issues, and I think I picked up, I started picking up Alpha Flight after I saw the uh, the twelfth issue, and one of them will surely die. I think yeah. it was on the cover. I I started and I, think I said, yeah, after that. that's that's where I said I have to get that. I said I, I didn't realize that Byrne was doing that, and I wasn't reading. You know, it's like it's, when I read the comic books, I didn't necessarily read the checklists and letters page and stuff like that so i didn't really know when when so when someone moved from one book to another uh obviously i knew when burn was on fantastic four because it was what it was but when alpha flight happened i don't know how i missed that i i mean i missed that like i missed the the birth of guns and roses you know in the late in the late 80s so mm. <laughs> i just have to sit there and go wow but at least it gave me a bunch of stuff to be able to go back and read but yeah. when, when we do get to it, you know, the, the one thing you're going to find, uh, even Byrne himself says that, you know, that Alpha Flight to him was always kind of two-dimensional to him. You know, he, he and, you know, when they, he created Alpha Flight, it was basically creating a group of characters that could take on the X-Men. And so there wasn't a whole lot of background created on any of them. And as he had to, and he did it, you know, even when he was working on the book, it was like, you know, it wasn't that labor of love that you see in Fantastic Four or, or X-Men or, or, you know, whatever, because there wasn't any history there. There wasn't any Kirby or Ditko or anything that came before it. And, you know, the, the characters were created for one purpose, and now they're being used again, and there's this big draw for him, but he wasn't necessarily that happy to be doing it. He did it because that's what they wanted him to do, it's because they're saying, you know, you've got to do it. So... I, when I read it, I kind of see that and I feel that now. But you know, I mean, I didn't necessarily you know get that when I first read it, and I thought it was cool. Yeah, but I, I have to reread them because I, I liked his writing on Alpha Flight. I was, uh, I thought the characters are, you know, as strong as what was coming on X Men. So maybe yeah. on my reread, I uh, feel differently. But, but you know, Alpha Flight number one, I think it it really brought forth one of those comic book dialogue moments that just started surfacing everywhere. And that was the line, how can something so big move so fast? <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> I remember that when that, that huge, was it Tundra? It's, was yeah. moving around and, and 
Langowski, uh, Sasquatch was making the comment. You know, of course, he's someone big that moves really fast. So right. I don't know how you can ask that question. Anyway, uh, but yeah, there will be some cover coverage of Alpha Flight down the road. I just don't know when. There's a lot of stuff we do want to cover, and and Tim and I are sitting there fighting with each other day after day uh, to figure out what we're going to do. You know, next. And uh, so you know, it, I've got the black eye right now. He's got the busted nose. That's right. It's and, it's said Kirk versus uh, <laughs> Kirk versus Spock fight. Yeah, it's to the death. Okay. Well, here, take this shot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. Well, thanks, Dale. We really appreciate the letter. I hope you keep uh, listening. Keep writing. The next one comes from Kirk Greenfield. Actually, it's two emails. I'm kind of working together, and he goes by Kirk Gronveld. And I'm assuming there's a joke in there, but I'm not sure. It's titled First Burn Podcast. And Kirk says, I've just started listening to your first show. I agree. I'm a burn victim from about 1980 onward. My first burn book was picking Uncanny X-Men 112 up off the shelf to flip through it and thinking, gee, this artwork is really realistic. It looked really good. I wonder how long this has been going on. You know, Imagine if you started picking X Men up at one twelve or, or one oh eight, how much you know how much that's worth now. Anyway, um, then like a fool, I put it down again and returned to my college studies for another two years. Two years? Ouch! What was I thinking? I could have afforded the few quarters it would have cost me to enjoy the artwork. My one comment so far is that you guys need to adjust your mic level. <laughs> yes, we do. Okay, I think we have. Or ride them during the editing and recording process. One of you is so much louder, and the first voice is so much softer. Distance from the mic is probably the solution. Watch out popping your bees and peas and bees and such. Yeah, they're actually known as plosives, um, and that, that was me because I was having my microphone right here in front of my mouth. But I moved it up here, and it's not so bad. Now I have to worry about my fricatives. That's your Fs and your Vs. Yeah, I actually took a, a course in college where we learned about all that, and I learned about phonetics. And uh, just we've been playing around with the microphones and such, trying to make sure that we don't do that. And I know that um, Tim here is you bought a, a, a what a microphone cover. I bought it. It's got a pop filter. It's and it came with yeah. a. I uh, bought a because I have a. I'm using a snowball, and I had it on my desk, but. You know, if you look at the little YouTube videos about how to use it, it should pick up fine from your desk, but mine didn't. So I'd always have to adjust the levels when I was editing the show. But I bought a, it looks like a swing arm lamp, and it, but my mic attaches to it, and it came with a pop filter that, that just, it's basically just a, like a piece of pantyhose that fits in front of it so that when I make P sounds like that, that hopefully won't come out on the audio. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we're getting now we're, we're, we're learning yeah. it, you know, it's only we've only we're, done yeah. three of these shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he, he closes up uh, the first email by saying, Keep up the good work. I think you have a head on your hands. I really hope so. Uh his second message goes, just finished listening to the rest of the first episode and heard your request for suggestions. Sure, Burns FF run is great, but perhaps you might consider a few issues the few issues run up to two fifty that includes Reed Richards saving Galactus. Or perhaps the Doom Terrax Silver Surfer arc that leads to the Trial of Reed Richards. I think this was collected in a graphic novel called The Trial of Galactus or something similar. I believe that's correct. Uh, but the single issue that I was going to ask to co-host might be the FF Annual number 17, which is all about Johnny's new girlfriend stumbling into a very strange rural farm town in upstate New York, which ties way back to FF2 as well as the Avengers 92 and 93. 
the Beachhead Earth 3 Cow Shot Me Down uh, as a one-shot one story. It's very light on Fantastic Four, but a wonderful puzzle that stands alone. And yeah, I know the story he's talking about, and I've always enjoyed that one. Um, I think that's one of the one of the stories where um, you can really see Burn trying something with his inking that he wasn't doing on the regular yeah. book too. Yeah, it looked different. And those are both, at least on my list, the the Terex Silver Surfer arc and the Annual are both on my list for upcoming stories. So he must but be you reading know, that you brain. Know, what, I, what I'd like to do before those guys, if I was to if I was to jump into any FF story, I want to do. The Gladiator story. Oh, 250? And, but, yeah, or, uh, yeah. 249 and 250. I think, I think you and I, you and I will, will take the conversation off air and, as we battle down through the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the, yeah. the next story. And there's plenty of time but, to get yeah. to all this stuff. And let's see, what he says here next is, alternatively, there's the one-shot Beyonder tie-in about Johnny Storm giving up his role as a human torch because of the kid's misguided use of matches in about 263 or so. Or the one-shot She-Hulk story in FF275, Haywood's big and green and has a staple on her name. That's a good story. And these are just off the yeah, these are just off the top of my head. Now, yeah, the the Johnny Storm one. I know that one was one that uh, even Stan Lee wrote in a letter. Yeah. Uh, about about that one because it was just it's it's a powerful story, and uh, probably one of the best Human Torch stories uh, that that was written to that point. And the the She-Hulk story, I I, I have questions about that one. Because you know you've got that skeezy uh, editor of that, uh, and the guy that took the pictures, and I always wondered, you know, the way that they got his hair and everything was that kind of a dig on Stanley. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that's supposed to be Stanley. And you know, just okay. I mean, if, if and if Stan doesn't mind, then I don't mind either. But I just I just wondered about that. Okay, he continues. If you wanted to do a scroll themed show, you could look at the return of the Super Scroll in Alpha Flight 7 and 8, as well as Marvel 2-in-1 with Spidey and Mrs. Marvel. That was Marvel team-up, not 2-in-1. Um, as well as his actions in Namor and Iron Fist in the late, na- late teens of Namor's 1990s title. There is also one of the two Avengers FF annuals where they meet on the same scroll ship in companion annuals. Yeah, the uh, Avengers and the Fantastic Four crossover where it... Uh, you got the two great I know covers. Kyle that they're kind of from two different angles. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the, both stories uh, uh, they come together uh, with his art. Though, uh, if I remember right, on the um, I think on the Avengers one, Joe Sinnott did the inks, and then on the Fantastic Four one, I, I could have him backwards. Kyle Baker did the inks, and I am such a huge fan of Kyle Baker's inks. I think it gives when he works with the right artist, whether it's you know John Byrne or Butch Gweiss, that that he gives that that uh, art a uh, nice fine uh, a refined look to it. Yeah, that is really cool. It's almost it's almost foggy. Uh, the only person I could think to to uh, compare it to today is uh, Immel, Stuart Immelman, who did the the great series Secret Identity. Yeah, and. Uh, but but that's just you know a personal thing that that I really like that so that makes me remember that so well though he continues on for independence try a few of the doomsday plus one stories or the modern day retelling of the doomsday and of course there's the critical error from from the volume the best of John Byrne volume one a silent story that works real well and has been reprinted as a separate one shot comic with less nudity for the newsstand well where's the fun in that. <laughs> 
Well, I just do the actual story, which I've gotten. In. We, yeah, which oh, I, that's right. That, that came from the the art of John Byrne, right? Right. Yeah, that's where I that's where I have it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let me know if floats your boat, and and we'll see. I think we're going to, yeah, we're, uh, there's a couple technical questions, but I think we're going to deal with those uh, in Facebook. That was from Kirk Greenfield, co-host of Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader podcast. Check Mediafire or Tumblr for bi-weekly podcasts, starting with Tales to Astonish number 70 onwards. Our next one comes from friend and supporter Luke Giaconetti of the, uh, what you call it, the uh, Earth Destructive Directive. And also, he's he's also on. Um, he, I believe, he's also on the Who True Freaks, the Doctor Who one, and the uh, Starling Vault of Monster, Monster Tales of Horror. Terror. I'm sure I'm I'm butchering that, but he's one of the the guests on that with Chris Honeywell and some others. His email is titled "Better Get Some Topical Cream Because Everyone Just Got Burned." Burn Victims. Hey guys, just finished listening to the first episode of Third Degree Burn and I wanted to write in and let you guys know how much I enjoyed it. As I've said on other podcasts, I'm not very good at picking out different artists' work as a lot of podca- as a lot of other podcasters. This includes John Byrne. I know his stuff and I'm a fan of it, but I've never followed Byrne's career beyond when he happened to be doing a book I enjoy. So to me, this is less a retrospective than an examination of work which I'm not really familiar with. As far as Avengers 164 through 166... This seems like the prototypical Bronze Age Avengers stories. I've not gotten up to this point in my Avengers reading in essential format, but I am going to have to rectify that situation. Between you guys talking about this Continuaria story and the fellows over in Avengers Spotlight covering the Korvac saga, which starts in the next issue, a couple of quick points. Eric Jostin's other identities besides Power Man. Eric Jostin's other identities besides Power Man, Goliath, and the Smuggler was as the Thunderbolt Atlas. And when the beloved, by me, Power Man versus Power Man went down in Power Man number 21, say that three times real fast, <laughs> I am pretty sure that Justin S. Cage well outclassed in raw strength, but Cage uses his skills as a fighter and his knowledge of the environment as they're in fact fighting in Cage's home turf in the Gem Theater to his advantage. Cage also breaks out one of the best lines of the era. You can call yourself Spider-Man. You can call yourself the Invisible Girl. You can stick a flag in your navel and call yourself the Spirit of 76. But if you ever call yourself Power Man again, I will tattoo that name on your ribcage. <laughs> now, this is one of those things where, you, where he said what we, what we read here. But you know you're thinking something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's some great dialogue. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, let's see. For a future suggestion, I'd really like to see some of Burns' classic Iron Fist and Power Man and Iron Fist work. What? Okay, he'd like to see his classic Iron Man or Power Man and Iron Fist work. Whenever I think of Danny Rand, I picture John Burns' original take on him in my mind. So it only follows I'd like to hear some coverage of that series as your podcast progresses. Thanks and keep up the good work, Luke. P.S. Loved your episode art for episode one, especially Wanda's lovely assets. Yes, that's it. Assets. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, as far as Danny Rand goes, it's funny because um, I, I, I was the same way you were, Luke, in, in that, you know, whenever I pictured Danny Rand, I always thought of the John Byrne model. And when they had mentioned years ago, they were talking about doing an Iron Fist movie. And what's what's the guy's name that played Darth Maul? I can't uh, remember his yeah, name. Yeah, he's, a, he's a stunt guy. It's Ray Park. Yeah. Ray Park. Ray Park. Ray Park. And we actually got to see Ray Park act a little bit on Heroes 
because he was kind of a flash on that show. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is that he had the right look for Danny Rand. I thought that he looked a lot like the the John Byrne version of Danny Rand. That if they made his hair blonde and all that, he probably would have been been right for it. But now a lot of years have passed by, and that's not going to happen. Now, they are going to have, I believe, Iron Fist upcoming on one of the uh, Netflix, Netflix series. series. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Of course, we still got to get through Jessica Jones, alias... And then Power Man by himself, Luke Cage, before we even get it, get close to Iron Fist. Well, Iron Fist will probably like they're gonna like they're gonna do with the Punisher and second season of Daredevil. They'll introduce him. Yeah, not, I don't know if he'll get his own show or not, but they'll probably if they have uh, Power Man. They'll probably introduce Rand in that show. And he they made us share a show instead of having a, a uh, an Iron Fist show and a Power Man show. Uh, they should combine them, you know, into one show. Yes, yes. Okay. Now our, uh, let's see. Yeah, this is our last email. Now I've got one other from Kirk again, but I'm, I'm going to hold off on that one. Uh, number five here, though, is from Chris and Cindy Franklin, also known as the Supermates. Uh, titled Great Podcast. Brian and Tim, I just wanted to drop you guys a line and tell you how much I enjoyed your first two episodes and your guest spot on Back to the Bins. I followed you guys from Back to the Bins over to your own show, so your diabolical plan worked. I wish I thought it something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you covering the Scott Lang Ant-Man debut story arc. And I have, as I have little experience with the character, so you've helped me prep for my visit to the theater this weekend. Again, your diabolical plans are working. <laughs> I think this is a great idea for the show. And you guys are off to a fantastic start. Byrne has worked on every major and lots of minor characters from the big two. And I can't... I can't see you guys getting bored or bogged down with your nonlinear approach to his work. Also, as a graphic designer by trade, I have to say your logo is really sharp. Kudos to whoever designed it. And that goes to you, Tim. Oh, oh, thank you. I'm going to have to, have to uh, write to this guy. He's a graphic designer, too. Yeah. Well, if you all didn't know, Tim is a graphic designer. You went to a lot of schooling for that, right? Uh, yes. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time learning to draw nice things. So I know awesome. what I know what color to pick, and I can draw a straight line. So, yeah, and and it, as you've seen by our initial uh, promos that that we put on Facebook, uh, if if you saw those, that is, uh, Tim was able to to take some of the the, the better known burn panels and turn them into really really nice promos for us that I liked, and uh, our logo, of course, is uh, is a, a thing of beauty as well. Thank you. All right. Now, he continues on, I'd like to hear you guys cover Burns, Superman, and Batman Generations Mini. I think the first two series are some of the best stuff he's done in the past 20 years or so, and I agree with that myself, totally. Although, I'm really enjoying his Star Trek photo novels. My wife Cindy and I even covered two of those issues on, on Supermates. Looking forward to all the great episodes to come. Best of luck to you, Chris Franklin, Supermates Podcast. And the Power Records podcast. And, you know, thanks, Chris. We really do appreciate that. I definitely want to cover Generations. I think it's uh, one of the things that really inspired me to look around and see if anybody was talking about this stuff. And aside from you, I really, aside from you guys, I don't think that there's been many other podcasts where they've really given uh, Generations the look it deserves. Now, I think you know when Tim and I get two generations, it's going to be a lot like OMAC, where we're going to have to break it up into a, a, yeah. a series of shows. I don't know how easy it would be to have guests on that particular one because I know you and I are just going to really dig into it. 
There's yeah. a lot to look at, a lot to cover. Uh, just so many characters to sit there and talk about uh, Burns' handling of it, and then the changing of the styles through the, uh, the different the years, years as, they, as, as they go up through the years is just amazing. And I'll tell you this now for nothing: I wish Burn would do a generations type book for Marvel. I, I think it's it's a no brainer. But given the current state of things in the market, and given the relationship that Burn has with the big two. It really doesn't seem like we're going to see Byrne doing any books for for the big two anytime in the near future. I, I don't see that unless unless it's a, a project he just can't say no to, uh, and he's given a lot of leeway I, in what he wants to do. So I agree. I, don't I think. think that 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 management will have to change in order for for that to happen. But given the the decisions that seem to be coming out of the big two lately, and how they seem to be so opposed to selling comic books. It may be possible for new management to take over. We'll just have to see. Well, the 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 whole, whole connection to the Marvel Studio, the Marvel Cinema Universe, which is really overshadowing the books. It's becoming the the dominant entity. I read today that whoever's writing Spider Gwen, that they were given yeah. instructions not to create any new spider-based or spider-themed characters because Marvel yeah. no longer owns the rights. It's because Sony has them. So they're basically, it's they're not giving any, creating anything new that maybe Sony can automatically have the rights to. So that... Right, and same thing, same thing with Fantastic Four. Yeah, and that that just hurts everybody because, I mean, the, this whole struggle, the fact that they don't own the rights to the FF, so now the FF is just, or Spider-Man, all that stuff's just being downplayed because they can't they can't bring them into their universe. It's kind of a, a lose situation for everybody. Yeah, and, and the only thing that, that can help, I mean, you know, the the fact that Sony is working with Marvel on the next Spider-Man movie and allowing Spider-Man to be over within the Marvel universe, that's a win-win for everybody. That's good, yes. And and I I, I had wished and, and we'll talk more about this on, you know, when we get together with the guys for the FF Roundtable. I I really hope that you know the that Somehow the two companies, uh, the company handling who's handling Fantastic Four now is that Fox or is that Fox, Sony? Also? Fox has Fantastic Four. I, I hope they can find a way to come together. Uh, I, you know, and, and it, sadly that may mean that this movie has to tank. But we'll, we'll talk more about that on a, on a future podcast. Right. Um, let's see. We have not yet decided what we're going to do for uh, the next episode after we finish OMAC. Um, our next episode, obviously, will be issues three and four of OMAC, but uh, what's beyond that, um, we're, like I said, we're still fighting through it, so to speak, and uh, I get the next punch. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're we'll, taking, we'll have we're that taking turn who's, who gets to be on top. All right. Uh, is there anything else, or are we pretty much ready to, um, to say goodbye? I think that? that's it. You know, we, we, uh, we're, again, uh, this podcast is is kind of new so we're still ironing out all the wrinkles so we have to kind of bear yeah. with us so we're gonna slip up like i realized that when we introduced this episode we never told we didn't tell anybody that's episode three we just told them what we're gonna talk about but this is actually episode three of yeah but third degree burn episode three wow whoever thought we'd get that far i consider there are people that are that are putting out you know doing episodes 200 and 300 and yeah but we'll get there well anyway yeah. Now, thanks to everybody that's been listening. Thanks to everybody that's been commenting, whether it's been on Facebook or email or 
uh, in iTunes. If you, if you guys can go on iTunes and give more reviews, that would be great for us. Uh, you know, just anything to get us uh, a little bit more exposed to everybody else. Um, maybe we can, you know, just take over the world. Yeah. Now, and- <clears throat> I promise you, if we do take over the world, uh, number one, we won't have like uh, stormtroopers or anything like that. Um, all of our soldiers will be volunteers. And they won't, they won't wear masks or anything like, like stormtroopers. You'll be able to see the faces. That way we can see our enemies coming. <laughs> well, I, I think if we take over, the world's going to wind up like idiocracy. So that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Okay. Um, I think that we've covered everything, haven't we? Yeah, that's it. I just, again, just if you've got promos, send them to us. We are happy to play anybody's promo. Feel generous enough, play our promo on your show. Uh, if you have any kind of feedback at all, but, you know, if it's bad, if you think we stink, let us know so we can correct that. Um, just be sure to say more than just you stink. Tell right. Us why. Be, be specific in which way we do stink. All right. Well, that's enough for now. <laughs> uh, for Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm Tim Elliott. We'll see you next time. Good night. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Alright, I'll be me.